Hello everyone, this is Ali. And I'm Guy. And this is episode number two of the Fancy Lab Coat Guilt. This episode is sponsored by SciFind, a scientific collaboration network. Here, we interview scientists from across the board to tell us about scientific culture, their life, and their life's work. It's an open space where members of the scientific community can talk about information beyond their publications. We're here for you to leave with an understanding of how science works and how we can make it better. So who's wearing our fancy lab coat today? I mean, it's a bit hot in LA, so it's an overkill. But in any case, Dr. Louis Metzger, he's the co-founder and CEO of the DeepView VC, the founder of BioCaptivate, a biotech think tank, and advisor of numerous scientific companies, a mentor at IndieBio. He's been a lead investigator at Novartis. He's got his PhD from Duke University, completed a postdoc at UCSF. He's written in Forbes and across other publications. You know, he's the mother of dragons, breaker of chains, lord of Westeros itself. All right, all right. Dr. Metzger, <laughs> he's a writer, a scientist, an entrepreneur, and a profound thinker, a real renaissance man. Lewis, welcome to our show. Well, thank you. That, that introduction was uh, the kindest I think I've received in, <laughs> in the time I can remember. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, it's, it's going to really be great to chat with you today and especially around topics that are important to SciFind's mission and really thinking about how do we change the culture of science and how do we, how do we think about data reproducibility and building a community around that. Yeah, yeah. So how, how was your day today? Tell us, like, how was, are you staying in LA or? Uh, I just drove up from San Diego. Mm. I was staying with uh, a coworker, former coworker from Novartis Pharma. We both worked in infectious disease. Uh, he's a medicinal chemist. Uh, I'm a biochemist. And cool. uh, we reminisced a bit. And uh, <laughs> I got the lowdown on uh, the current state of San Diego's biotech scene. Yeah. And uh, we tasted some wine because <laughs> chemistry does not just happen in the lab. Uh, it's, all, <laughs> it's all around us. And that's the beauty of it. Nice. So let's get started. I want to get to know you more and get to the story of the origin. Like, where did you grow up? Where are you from? I want to start with that about you. Okay. Uh, I can, yeah, I was born in the Midwest. I was born near Chicago. I mm. uh, don't remember it. Uh, my parents <laughs> uh, both were born and grew up in the Midwest and they decided to do something very interesting and move away from their families and ended up in Tucson, Arizona. Mm. So my earliest memories are from Tucson and I lived there for most of a decade. And it was a really cool place to grow up. Uh, yeah. The Sonoran Desert is unusual. If you haven't been there, I recommend. I've heard the sunsets are beautiful there. Sunsets are beautiful. Uh, uh, it's it's a lush desert, if that makes any mm. sense, from a biodiversity standpoint. So it's yeah. it's definitely a desert. But there are saguaros and you know many cacti, and uh, the smell of the desert there is unique. Uh, creosote. So again, chemistry. Mm. Uh, and after the rains, there's this perfume of, of the desert. And so it's, it's a special mm. place, uh, rugged terrain, but beautiful. And growing up, I think that that helped spark an interest in science because uh, we didn't have a lot of money. So we did, you know, our weekend activities were hiking and oh, you cool. know, basically I love hiking. hiking all over the face of, of, Arizona at that time yeah. and uh, rock collecting uh, because Ooh. there's so many exposed rocks of all varieties. And so for a kid, this was fun. Did you ever and, find a fossil? Oh, yeah. Fossil? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, those little uh, trilobites. <laughs> yes. uh, many. And, so, and to put it in perspective, how old were you in that phase? Like were, were you uh, in middle school? You know, or? two to 12, oh, two I to see. 11, mm, okay. you know, so younger childhood. And then yeah. uh, we moved to a, a 
adjacent corner of the Southwest, but very mm. different. Uh, we moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, and mm. uh, entirely different ecosystem, uh, very even a different culture. Uh, yeah. And uh, but it was fun. And and both places were also steeped in history. And so you had, you know, they had been ruled by, you know, the Native Americans, then Spain, then France briefly, then Mexico. And, uh, and then the U.S. So you had this really interesting mixture of cultures, yeah. uh, uh, a lot of um, Hispanic uh, culture, yeah. Native American culture. So it was it was definitely different. Uh, so I'm a child of the desert. Mm. Uh, went to under Same here, by the way. Oh, so, you are. Yeah, uh, which yeah. which desert? I, I grew up in the Middle Eastern desert, Kuwait. Uh, okay. <laughs> it's a flat, very different topography, but still a desert. So, yeah, ah, but, I hear you. But you have the Red Sea. And the you know the sort of there, underwater other ends. Ends. It's the other ends. Under, like, yeah, I, yeah, I've seen it. Yeah, yeah uh, we had a, we have our own like uh, Gulf also in front of our desert, which is like some people call it Arabian Gulf, uh, Persian Gulf. But it's bio, on who you are. it's biodiverse. Yes, uh, I would say yeah, 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 because it has this this you know essentially there's, tropical underwater. There's those squirrel yeah. things. What oh are yeah, those called? We, we have our own like they're jarbu. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I don't even know the name in English. We were like googling they, it. They, they look like these, um, uh, kind of like a chinchilla looking. Oh, interesting. Uh, looking mouse thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So, so I grew up in the Southwest, and um, we were just a curious family. Uh, mm. My parents are not scientists. Uh, yeah. uh, my mom was a homemaker, and then uh, got into libra librarian work. Yeah. Uh, and uh, interestingly. Now she sometimes is an extra on Netflix films because oh, they wow. opened a new headquarters in Albuquerque. Oh, wow. Like late, really in, cool. late in life, she turned into, wow. you know, What made her decide that. to do that? That's such an interesting... I don't know exactly. No, a sense of adventure. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love that. And no, I... So we had we had a sense of adventure, and I think that that, that was formative. Uh, my dad was in sales mm -hmm. uh, and still is, uh, you know, first insurance and then like um, secure printing doc printed yeah. documents and like labels, secure labels. Uh, and uh, but they both my parents had a strong amateur interest in science, so they didn't really push. I'm the oldest of three brothers. They didn't yeah. really push us into it. We just got interested as a result of growing up. And, yeah. you know, uh, what would you say, like a, a big reflection from childhood that kind of got you in this field? You Is know, there, if there's any. Um, my parents bought me one of those, and I'm sure you've talked to many scientists who have a similar story. It's either a chemistry set <laughs> or, or like a kid's microscope. And yeah. my parents bought me this kid's microscope that came with, you know, it was the 80s. So there were, it, you know, at those, there were fewer lawsuits, I suppose. So there were, <laughs> there were, you know, there was a scalpel and there were dissection tools and there were some pre-made slides. And then there were, you know, slides that you could make your own. Mm, uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, that I thought was just amazing. So, you know, looking at salt Ooh. crystals and sugar crystals and parts of insects and pieces of vegetables. Mm. And, and uh, it, it really, really piqued my interest in, it taught me that there are things around us that are unseen that are very complex. And so I it seemed, seemed like magic. Yeah. And as an aside, my parents found the microscope uh, in storage a few years ago. <laughs> and so they sent it to me as a birthday gift. And so it sits on the shelf behind me uh, at, at my desk. Oh, uh, wow. We need to see a picture home. of that. <laughs> yeah, I'll send you a picture, a photo. I'd love and, to see that, yeah. Uh, so that really was, yeah, that was one of those like aha moments. Mm, yeah, nice. Any, would you see any role models or mentors throughout growing up? Well, obviously my parents, uh, yeah. but I think for more the more formal study of science and then 
I had this initial interest in biology, but chemistry was still opaque mm. to me as it is to many kids. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I had a really, when I started high school, I had a really great biology uh, teacher. Uh, her mm. name was Bonnie Crumpler. Uh, and then um, she was a, a, a biologist, but she was really interested in biochemistry. Mm. And so unusually for the classes at those times in high school, she was very interested in teaching the chemist chemical aspects. So how do DNA mm -hmm. and you know, RNA get you know, biosynthesized, you know, this idea of information encoded hmm. you know, in chemistry mm. that propagates chemistry in essence. Uh, yeah. And uh, and this this really excited me. And she said, hey, look, you know, there's there's this growing field of biochemistry. We're we're learning more and more. Uh, there's so much to do. You should you should consider marrying, mm. you know, these two interests. And at the time, I actually wanted to be pre-med uh, and, you know, sometimes when I think of what sports cars I'd like to buy, sometimes I still think I should have been pre-med. Yeah. But the truth is that like everyone thinks that, I think at some stage who is involved in biology, but I really began to, to say, well, I really would like to be more on the chemical side. Mm. Like I want to see how chemistry drives life and life drives chemistry. Yeah, I think one of the greatest things like a mentor can do is inculcate that sense of curiosity, especially with parents, it's like, you, ha you almost have to like nurture that sensation, an environment that doesn't breed uh, curiosity, kind of, you know, it, it, it can die on the vine in a sense. Yeah, and that's, that's actually one thing uh, that my parents did very well is that they never pushed us. Mm -hmm. So I was never really pushed to do particularly well in school. I wasn't discouraged by any means, but no one was asking me, you know, had I done my homework yeah. assignments. Uh, so it was, I, I think, under pressure or, a lack of pressure gave room to grow. Mm -hmm. And and I, I think that that was really helpful and mm -hmm. something when people are learning and and starting out their lives and careers, I think it's important to give, whether they be kids or employees or you know, coworkers, room to grow and discover. Yeah. And so yeah. that, that was the lesson I took from that. Pre pressure is almost like a quick way to make someone lose interest. Like I remember studying math in school and like uh, math now as an adult, I'm like watch YouTube videos all the time. I'm like, what's the what's the Poincaré conjecture? Somebody <laughs> explain this to me. Like it, it's like so interesting versus before where it's like, OK, what's the hypotenuse of blah, blah, blah. It's just kind of lame, yeah. even though it's beautiful. What would you say apart from science going up that that you think accented into or improved your current state and the perspective as a scientist? Well, uh, a few different things. My my childhood was very enriched as in experiences. Mm -hmm. And so I, I did grow an appreciation for nature and mm. just the diversity of it, but also how complex even simple things like minerals are. Yeah. And if you think of the you know, crystal structure of minerals, and uh, if you think of what you know, the genome size of plants yeah. and how many there are. And so I just, I think that, that an appreciation for natural diversity was, was one thing. Uh, certainly uh, I did some art, uh, not mm. sure I was very good, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. but I, it, it, you know, it's, it's there's so you're painting or what kind of uh, line drawings and painting oh nice thought of getting back to it uh but um that may have to wait a bit longer uh Can also I host a paint night yeah if, you ever, I, if you're I, ever yeah, interested we host a paint we had one last night we host a paint <laughs> night like kind of bi-weekly and a bunch of people come in novice expert whatever and we just kind of do i always have a sketchbook when i'm 
working. <laughs> I just like yeah. want to doodle stuff all the time. <laughs> I, I do that too. Yeah, Sometimes I, mean, I find it helps me better assimilate a phone conversation I'm listening to. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But it looks so it looks inattentive, but in <laughs> fact, in some strange ways, helpful. But I, I think so. I think having an appreciation for the qualitative parts of life, mm -hmm. in addition to the quantitative, is very important because mm -hmm. I think scientists are often cast as people who want numbers and figures only and maybe undervalue human interactions yeah. or undervalue mm -hmm. things that are difficult to quantitate yeah. or impossible, such yeah. as the appreciation of a particular type of art. That's mm -hmm. you know, a given taste. But science has some art to it as well. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that science is a creative endeavor. Mm. It's in fact very creative uh, when you think of experimental designs and especially mm -hmm. leaping between concepts and leaping between or bringing together parts of two different fields or subfields, that, that's where the most interesting things happen. And I'm sure you've heard this before, this intersection of fields that normally don't talk. Well, building those bridges, that's creativity. Yeah. And, and so I think, in a way, you're painting a canvas of, of, a, of a connectome between individuals and pieces of information. Mm -hmm. And so that's art, yeah. uh, one could argue. Uh, I also, uh, it being the desert, I like to swim. That was the sport. <laughs> that was the sport to do. Uh, yeah. uh, and uh, I still do. Uh, I mm -hmm. got roped into competing after, uh, right before the pandemic. But then the pandemic has been bad for swim meets. So, yeah. uh, What's but your I, favorite style? Uh, I'm an individual medley person. So oh, that's equal parts of all the strokes. Uh, <laughs> Means if you're not great at at, all, at any of them, but good enough at all of them, oh my god, sort of, yeah, sort of yeah. works. Uh, but uh, but yeah, it was a it was a great great childhood, and we really you know took advantage of where we lived. Yeah. Uh, and then you know I can talk more about mentorship uh, later on when we talk about grad school. Yeah. But you know another key mentor was yeah. there. And I love that you mentioned that because that's my next transition. I want to jump from childhood to PhD straight away. So. Duke, Ivy League, I see on your CV. Any specific reason why you chose that school? That is uh, complex. There are, there are multiple reasons. <laughs> and, and the path to getting there is, I think, very typical of, of paths I've ended up on, which is that the initial intention mutated over time. So uh, to people who like to lead their lives in a checkbox-driven way, that's really not how things work out. And so I yeah. have big, learned that over time. So when I was, I have to back up and say that in undergrad, I had a great mentor, David Vanderjack. Mm -hmm. uh, he did his uh, PhD with H.C. Brown, uh, Nobel laureate in chemistry at, at Purdue. And uh, he, he had me as his undergraduate research mentee. So I did, did work in his lab. Yeah. And it was actually uh, computational uh, work. So taking computational models of drug-like molecules and docking those to computational models of enzymes or proteins that were drug targets. Mm -hmm. And as a result of doing that in silico work in undergrad, I wanted in grad school to learn how to determine the X-ray crystal structures of, of a protein. I wanted to, to actually do the wet lab work that, mm -hmm. that, you know, and then the later you know, biophysics that gets you those sorts of data. Uh, so it was coming at it from that angle. And sometime around late, you know, grad school or late undergrad, I, you know, my last year of undergrad, I thought, well, I'll apply to grad school uh, because I don't think I want to do medical work. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, and I had taken more chemistry than biochemistry at that yeah. point in undergrad. So I thought, you know, really, uh, I don't mind pushing electrons. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? 
And, and so I applied to a number of different graduate programs, but I had no real mentorship other than my undergrad advisor. Nobody in my family had gone to advanced science, science training. Yeah. I didn't know anyone who had. Yeah. And so what I did is I applied to grad schools in different wedges. So at the top were the you know, Harvard and Duke, you know, places that I probably wasn't going to get into, I thought. And then sort of a middle tranche of programs that did work that I was interested in. And I knew some professors at each of these places who I would really want to work mm -hmm. for. Uh, and then, you know, a few local universities just as a, you know, backup. I hope they let me in type, yeah. type thing. And, and so I was surprised when I started getting uh, letters saying, you know, come and interview. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the first was actually UPenn. Uh, and uh, I realized Pennsylvania is cold in the winter <laughs> uh, very, and yeah. very cold. Uh, and hockey fans are interesting. Also, I went to Penn State, so oh, okay, so you understand. Yeah. I definitely understand that. From a desert person transitioning to a cold city, it's tough. Yes, yes, I, I cannot. Well, I, I sort of can imagine, but yeah. uh, so so it turned out that I, you know, I, I was invited to interview at all the schools I, I applied yeah. to. Uh, which was on one hand great, but then on the other hand, it was making the choice that was mm. that was difficult. And uh, I was uh, uh, I had a really good interview at Duke. Mm. And uh, ironically, find a good interview for the listeners. Let's uh, I want them to like well, what, what makes a good uh, what makes a good interview. Well, grad school interviews may have changed because this was this was circa two thousand three two thousand four. Um, but at that time, if one was invited to come out and give an interview, mm -hmm. one was almost certainly going to be selected to join the program. Yeah. It was more of a screening process. So if one behaved horribly and got drunk at a cocktail party, <laughs> yeah. uh, then, or, or, you know, created red flags in the interviews, then yeah. it was a weed out process. But what it tended to be is the same pool of students were competed for by different graduate programs. Mm -hmm. So the professors would try to sell the students a bit on their work. Mm -hmm. uh, and and when I was at Duke, I went, had a normal set, a normal number of a group of meetings with different one on one meetings with different professors like everybody did. And then on the Saturday of this four day weekend interview process, my schedule was suddenly changed because the chair of the department wanted to have a supernumerary interview with me. Oh, wow. Uh, and I, I, well, I wasn't sure that was a good thing. Yeah. And it was the guy who ended up being my thesis advisor, uh, Chris Rates at Duke. Yeah. And he loaded me down with, with uh, glossy prints of his papers because you know, there were PDFs at that point, but professors still ordered many copies of each manuscript that they'd published, you know, printed on nice glossy paper and stacked in their office so that they could <laughs> yeah. give you samples of their favorite literature. And so he loaded me down with these and I had like this thick file folder of them on the airplane ride home. Uh, but, you know, he had really sought me out and was like, you know, you should consider working for me. But the irony is I wanted uh, to work for a professor at that program who was later completely discredited, Hamahalinga Protein Design. And so I largely chose Duke to go to a, a program where it was a lab I didn't even join because when yeah. I got there, I found out that that was a bad idea. Um, I was very tempted by Harvard, but you know, uh, as an aside, I will say that one of the things I think we need to change with graduate programs is that they favor people who can get uh, extended help from their family. Uh, wow. And, you know, historically, you know, 150 years ago. How would they know that? Would they like, it's interesting that it's very, like, I want to know more. Like, okay. A little, a little more about that. So, yeah. 
science was originally, research science was originally the preserve of the aristocracy. Mm. So if you already had money, uh, this was this was something that one self-funded experiments is what yeah. people did. Uh, Lavoisier is, a, is an example, uh, and and that's that's not to say that their work wasn't great, but they they didn't they didn't do it to earn money. Mm. Uh, and in the er time after World War II in the U.S., especially, uh, and and in, after the you know New Deal and how education was thought of differently in the U.S., the idea was we should have graduate student stipends to encourage people to do advanced yeah. studies. And uh, and that was good. But what's what's happened is that the cost of living and the stipends uh, of have diverged. And now it's a real economic sacrifice to say, I'm going to take my early 20s to my early 30s, potentially, and take the opportunity cost of living on a tiny stipend and spending years and years and years in graduate school and then now increasingly postdocs. And that tends to favor people who uh, don't have to spend that whole period of time as uncomfortable as they might if they only had to live off their own resources. So what's, what we're beginning to see is that uh, the only people willing to stick around in these programs, especially through a long postdoc, are people who have other sources of, of mm. uh, other resources. Yeah. And maybe that's not what was intended, right? Yeah. Um, but oh, I absolutely see this. Being myself a graduate student currently, like I have friends that with from different backgrounds, from different countries specifically that come and no, have no family here would literally be at the age of 30 living with five people in one bedroom because it's L.A. and rent is so expensive. So it, like when you compare it with what they're given as a stipend for their for their contribution. So, well, and, and th think about it a little further, even. I mean, you bring up an interesting point. So then you even have selective pressure. So someone who can put up with living with five roommates or housemates is a certain type of personality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then people who utter, who have to have their own bedroom <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or, or certain privacy or who aren't that social, they have plenty of good contributions as well. Yeah. But after a few years of that, they may say, well, screw this. Yeah. I'm not living mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. And yeah. so so we're actually selecting there, there's a there's a selection criterion. And are you losing wow. are you losing uh, are you losing cognitive diversity? Yeah. By applying these but but going back to the, the graduate school uh, and Harvard specifically. So when I interviewed at Harvard, unlike other graduate schools, Harvard puts up its potential students in um, not in a hotel, but with some of its current students. Mm -hmm. But inevitably, those current students can't be living four to a bedroom to put up their guests. And so I was put up by a very nice, nice graduate student uh, who lived in a palatial condo on Beacon <laughs> Hill in oh, Boston. Wow. And he said, I should really consider buying. And yeah. he, he said, this place is only 1.3. <laughs> and I said, 1.3 million. <laughs> and it's like, you know, 1. no, that's yeah. per month. Yeah, you, yeah, you, yeah, you <laughs> can't, can't do that you know, as, a, as a graduate student yeah, with normal yeah. resources. Uh, but, but he was great. Yeah. But it was a really different lifestyle. And mm -hmm. then later in my interview process, I met, met these four women, great, great ladies. They lived the, in bunk beds in two bedrooms, wow, uh, in a yeah. two bedroom apartment for the four of them. 
And uh, two of them were from the Southwest like me, and they went on and on about the importance of grow lights mm -hmm. uh, to get uh, you know broader ex light exposure. They thought that this improved their mood in the winter yeah. months. And I thought, uh-oh, uh, that sounds depressing. And then the other thing they said is it really helps to go on in on a Costco membership with mm -hmm. your housemates because canned tuna can get you through the lean <laughs> periods. Uh, and, uh, and I thought, nah, I'm not living yeah. like that. And and uh, I actually almost went to US, UCSD, almost oh, went great school too. Uh, almost went to Penn, mm. almost went to you know ended up going to Duke. But it was this sort of combination of I I knew I could I, I might not get so depressed by the cold winters there. Yeah, I could afford to live alone. I see. And um, uh, and I I really did want to work for the program. And mm. so those things together conspired. Yeah, there's a multiple factors. Yeah, to, fi yeah. to finally select Duke. I see. Yeah, but but it's it's never an easy of course yeah. thing, and especially you, when you have Penn and uh, other schools that are also amazing. Yeah. But I would say sometimes uh, I now looking back on it and having interviewed many people for you know roles in big pharma and small biotech, yeah. and for some of the companies I've advised, I've helped recruit CTOs, I've helped recruit mm. you know, rank and file scientists. Yeah, and it's not so much where you've gone to school. It's who you've wow. worked with, who you've worked with directly. Oh, I swear and I was about to ask you that question. Yes. I was like, say, coming from an Ivy League, do you think basically which what you just answered to an extent, like, is it mainly the school or is it the research and the professor? Well, would you say it, it's helpful to have facilities? Yeah, it's helpful to have resource, you know, good facilities to enable research. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the Bay Area, of course, is a good, a good example would be proximity to beam lines for X-ray crystallography. That makes things yeah. easier. Uh, and so one wants a well-equipped university. Yeah. But in the end of the day, most of the PhD program, the learning is from your colleagues, the more senior members of your lab, other grad students and postdocs, and your thesis advisor. That's like your research family. Yeah. And yeah. you need to join a good family and... And, and that's where most of the learning yeah. comes. I, I personally found the coursework very interesting and I did take coursework from really good mm. people in the field. Yeah, yeah. But I think I would have learned the same most other places that taught similar coursework. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as you know, a PhD is not a professional degree. It's often confused with one. Uh, a doctorate is different than an MD or like a, a PharmD. Mm -hmm. And so it's really not so much coursework driven and much of what you learn is one your own personal research yeah, yeah. and everyone's qualifications therefore look different yeah yeah uh, and and this actually gets a bit to many of the topics today that we yeah. would discuss mm -hmm. all right you've entered duke yeah you've made it you've selected it now tell us more about your research what did you do well uh, i actually i joined a lab so i mm -hmm. rotated in different laboratories yeah. and for listeners that don't know what this means mm -hmm. uh, rotating in a lab is trying out a possible phd lab for a number of weeks, usually in one's first or second year, yeah. uh, and rotating through a number of those labs. And we jokingly called the people who did that rotons. Yeah. <laughs> so they were temporary graduate students that went from lab to lab. Mm -hmm. And it was a two-way street in, in terms of evaluation. The professor wanted to find out, is the student any good and should I make an effort to recruit them? And the student wanted to find out, is does this look like something I could sink my you know, efforts into for uh, 
a undefined number of years <laughs> yeah. in the future. And are and and what is the culture of the lab like too? Who are my 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 colleagues going to be? Yeah. And and so I did that like everybody did, and I ultimately settled on a lab. Uh, Professor Dan Gerworth, uh, really great mentor and uh, x-ray crystallographer, because like I said, I wanted to learn how to determine protein structures mm. based on what I did in undergrad. Yeah. I wanted to extend it to that. And I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity. And uh, then he was denied tenure for political reasons. Mm. He had grants. He had successfully trained graduate students who had defended their thesis, theses. He'd built up a, a decent-sized lab, well-funded, published papers, taught classes, did all the things he was supposed to do. But due to faculty politics, and to his great surprise, uh, he was denied tenure. Wow. And, uh, and then appealed it, and mm. that was denied. And so he had to dissolve his lab. Wow. So I joined a lab that was dissolved six months later. And what did he do? Did he leave Duke? He oh. eventually left Duke uh, for SUNY Buffalo, Oh. Uh, and where he still is at yeah. the Hauptmann Woodward Institute, which is a structural biology institute. Yeah. And uh, they appreciate him there. Mm. But it, it, it did demonstrate to me the dangers of tenure track faculty yeah. because this guy did everything right. The, wow. he, he really mm -hmm. did all the things that were expected of a junior yeah. faculty. But there were some senior faculty who probably didn't Just like didn't the like fact. Well, they probably didn't like the fact that no one joined their labs after this guy came in their subspecialty oh, wow. because he was good to work for. Yeah, yeah. And so he was drawing students away that's from very like that's messed up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it was it really opened my eyes. And so then I was I had to go back to the drawing board and say, OK, what who do I join? Wow. I had rotated in that department chairs lab mm. who met with me, Christian Rates. Yeah. Uh, and and he said, I know you want to do structural biology. I'm a lipid biochemistry lab. Mm. We study the a sugar that has fat lipid fat molecules hanging off of it that forms part of the outer surface of bacteria gram negative bacteria it's mm -hmm. really important in understanding how drugs get into bacteria but uh, the molecule uh, also is used as an adjuvant for vaccines mm -hmm. so lipopolysaccharide or lipid a uh, which is what we studied uh, is and my mentor discovered the pathway by which this was biosynthesized so mm -hmm. after he died uh, everyone's been calling it the rates pathway of, mm. of lipid A uh, biosynthesis. Uh, that's what we worked on. And he yeah. said, but you can study enzymology and, you know, I really want you to join my lab and yeah. see how it turns out. So I was like, sure, I'll do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I liked it. I mean, granted, we spent a lot of time in the fume hood uh, extracting <laughs> radioactive, radio-labeled phospholipids uh, in you know these chloroform extractions oh, and it was it was it was it was old school biochemistry sniffing yeah. things you shouldn't be sniffing trying not <laughs> yes trying not to trying, trying not, not to, to sniff them uh, trying not to get irradiated uh we mm -hmm. had a, we had a big collection of geiger counters oh no uh, <laughs> but uh those sorts of experiments sure kept the competition away mm -hmm. the, the, my thesis advisor said well no one else wants to do this so yeah uh but but it was really it, it was it was a good environment and he was you know he died 10 years ago and oh, i sorry. still miss him yeah. and the longer he's been gone or the, the greater time that I've had to reflect on his management skills. Mm. Nobody is perfect, but yeah. he, he, he was rather insightful about management of, 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 of people, not just scientists, but mm -hmm. he, he had this really nice, nice way of teaching. 
And mm. what it was is we had these horrible Monday morning lab meetings that started at nine sharp and lasted till noon typically. And we'd sit around a conference table and he'd call people one at a time. And this is usually 15 or 20 people. Mm. And he would sometimes get a little bit cranky. You'd have to explain what you did, the yeah. week, what, were your, what was your experimental plan the week before? What did you learn? It was fine if things didn't work out mm. as long as you had yeah. a plan. Yeah. And so it was a little bit of troubleshooting, but he didn't exactly tell people, you need to do this. Mm. He just served as a, a guide to keep people from going entirely off the rails into futile, uh, futile spirals of experiments. But otherwise, he left this creative space for his trainees, both mm -hmm. his postdocs and his students. Yeah. And the more I look at that, the more I think that he he really worked hard to get the balance right. Was Ooh. it perfect? No. I mean, yeah. and I, and his lab lab safety thoughts were were a little alarming. So he <laughs> would he would wander around from person's lab bench to lab bench yeah. during the rest of the week uh, with a with his cup of coffee. And I remember one weekend, uh, you know, I was there doing a quick experiment that was timed. I had to be there at a certain mm -hmm. hour. And he wandered through and put his coffee down on my lab bench. And like there were, there had been chemicals that I would not want near my coffee cup <laughs> on that lab bench. And I said, so, so I wouldn't put it there. And he said, ah, too late. <laughs> so, uh, but, but he would, he would come, he would wander around to people's desks and just say, yeah, how's it going? I like that. And, yeah. uh, and then, but he would, he would then leave you alone. Yeah. And uh, some advisors are very distant with their students. Yeah. I've seen that also at UCLA. Yeah. And he made you write your own papers. Mm -hmm. And different people have different ability to write manuscripts. Yeah. And he didn't care. Mm -hmm. Everybody had to write a full first draft of every manuscript for him. He would not write your manuscript for you oh, or, or yeah. tell you to send him the data, the mm. figures, and then he would write the manuscript around it. No, he mm. wanted the whole thing. And again, this was good teaching because if he wanted to be efficient, he would have just taken people's data yeah. and written up the yeah. papers like many faculty do. He wants do. to teach you. How he wants to yeah. teach. And so yeah. he was willing to accept annoyance and things being slowed yeah. down. Yeah. So anyway, this is a, he was a great mentor and he, uh, he was elected to the National Academy when he turned 60 mm. and I was three or four years into grad school and all his former grad students and postdocs came back mm. to Duke uh, and had a seminar series where they presented their work and he was the MC, so it was a seminar yeah. series in his honor. Yeah. But he was hoarse during the uh, presentation. His voice was, he was losing his voice. Yeah. And he said, I need to see an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And so the day after he, this big party for him, mm -hmm. uh, he went to the Duke Medical Center right across the street from our lab, mm -hmm. and he just yeah. didn't come back. And oh, wow. uh, uh, you know, there had been something alarming on his thyroid, mm -hmm. and it was biopsied that day, and he had anaplastic thyroid cancer. So oh, wow. he came back like that. knowing that like I mean, you can look at the statistics for that cancer, and I don't yeah. think it's changed much, but it people don't live very long. Yeah. Uh, and in his case, he got lucky though because the cancer invaded his vocal nerve. He could have the primary tumor removed, uh, mm -hmm. and. Uh, except for having metastases taken out, fortunately in accessible places, uh, he was mostly healthy for the next, you know, for the, the remaining years of his mm -hmm. life. He would have, he would go into remission for a long time yeah. and he just wanted to keep working. Yeah. Uh, but he also, it changed him. And this yeah. is the other thing I learned from him the most is when he found out that instead of living into his eighties, as he probably anticipated, he probably wouldn't make it past his mid sixties. Yeah. Uh, he, became a little bit less one-track mind about science. Mm. So he really cared about the science, but 
he, for instance, went to Africa to see the Serengeti. Oh, wow. uh, he had a number of ex-trainees who were professors scattered across China. Yeah. He'd never visited mainland China. And so they sort of rolled out the red mm, carpet for yeah, him. And he, yeah. he got, so he, he did uncharacteristically exploratory things for him yeah. because he, he was reminded that you know, life is rare, yeah. is precious. And There's a lot to learn from his story. Like, yeah. As people that are young professionals that hey, there's other things other than your profession and what you do, yeah. And and then, and as it so happened, his lab's research never got more interesting than mm. in the last few years of his life. Wow. <laughs> and, and then yeah. he started getting into structural biology mm. and started to try to crystallize the protein, the enzymes that make up the rates pathway of lipid biosynthesis. So through a roundabout way, I ended up getting back to getting to x-ray crystallography anyway, mm. uh, but through a different and unexpected route. And uh, in, in that role, I, I actually collaborated with Bob Stroud at UCSF. Yeah. And so I left the rates lab to do a postdoc in Bob Stroud's lab where I did a crystal a protein x-ray crystallography extension of part of my thesis. So it yeah. sort of all flowed together. But this mentor, this, this Chris Rates, uh, he really did a good job. And at the time I thought, sometimes I thought he was a cranky old man, Yeah. but then I, <laughs> which he was, and sometimes I, I think I'm headed that direction, yeah. but uh, but he really did care about people. The mm. other thing he did is he did not keep his students too long. When it oh, was time to write up your one. thesis, yeah, because a student is most valuable to their PI when they're most senior mm. in their lab, because yeah. they know all the ropes, they can do the experiments efficiently. Yep. Yep. And so one is disincentivized from letting them go. And the same is true with postdocs, right? Mm. And uh, uh, we it's had like a the pyramid scheme. It is a, it, it, it is a, it is an inverted. Yeah. It is a, it is a pyramid, and and it only works really smoothly when there's a larger generation of trainees. Yes, uh, at the base of the pyramid. But anyway, it was. Uh, I, I can talk more about his mentorship, but yeah. that that was really key. So that's yeah. yeah. We're definitely gonna go through like, sure. a couple a couple of questions about it. But I wanna I wanna look into like basically the. The tricky parts to protein, like as as yeah. opposed to other technologies, what would you? Well, you know, protein biochemistry is both fun and challenging, mm -hmm. because when you're studying proteins in isolation, number one, in the real in real organisms in real life, yeah. proteins don't exist in in isolation. They're they're crowded by other proteins. Mm -hmm. They're crowded by small molecules. Yeah. Their their redox state and pH exposure is gonna be different than, than, mm -hmm. than what you might initially try in the laboratory. And so purifying one protein from ground up cells from yeah. some organism, uh, and then getting that protein to behave in a stable manner so that you can, you, one can do one studies mm -hmm. on it. Uh, that, that, uh, that is tricky. Yeah. And, and the well-behaved proteins are often equally well behaved, but the <laughs> ill-behaved proteins are all ill-behaved for different reasons. Yeah. And so, no two working with no two systems is the same. Mm. And and I think actually now what's really exciting is that uh, some parts of the working with protein chemistry are getting easier, allowing us to do more interesting experiments. And I'll, I'll give you an example. So I spent a great deal of time in grad school cutting and pasting pieces of DNA that would encode the proteins that I wanted to overexpress in host organisms, which then you know, were modified to hold these plasmids that drove expression of this protein. And then you'd grind up the organism and purify the protein. 
And the joke always was, is that overexpression of a protein is the best purification step, because if there was plenty of it, it was easier to purify. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> cutting and pasting DNA, yeah. even a decade ago, was really irritating. Mm. And one had to use pairs of enzymes that sometimes were and sometimes weren't compatible to clip pieces of DNA, and yeah. then you had to ligate them back together. And I spent an inordinate amount of time doing that. Yeah. Now, yeah. if I was a grad student, I'd pull out the lab credit card because DNA is now cheap to synthesize. Mm -hmm. And so while before you were limited in, let's just say you had a protein you really cared about, mm -hmm. but you wanted to make several versions of it from different organisms because maybe one of those would randomly behave better than the other. This yeah. is often done even now. Yeah. I would have to go get DNA from those different organisms, order that DNA, try to, try to amplify the piece I was interested out of it, and then clone it into this other organism. And now you can just know that somewhere in the world, a piece of DNA exists. You can look it up online and you can, be, you can say, okay, I want the mongoose ortholog of this human enzyme because there's something special about it that I care about. Yeah. Uh, you can just say, okay, this is its amino acid sequence wait, I want to express it in E. coli, or I want to express it in yeast cells. You can order the, the DNA. You can even order unnatural DNA that encodes that enzyme that is better matched to the organism that expresses the protein. Mm. And so this, this helps, it, helps it be overexpressed better in many cases. And, so, and it also saves you time because you just have the DNA synthesized. So the synthesis of, of DNA and RNA mm -hmm. uh, is really changing everything. Uh, and, uh, but still there's the problem of how do you formulate a protein? Mm. How, do you, how do you learn from the biology of it uh, to stabilize it and start with the conditions most likely yeah. you know, to be good? So it's, it's a, you know, in, 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 a, in a way it's empirical in a way it's it's knowledge driven yeah yeah what do you th like what what technologies do you think are coming out in the space like what are the you know i guess uh amazing moments in protein biochemistry right now what what are the kind of revolutionary cool technologies coming out of it i mean if you look at molecular biology it's like crispr and you know you have all these therapeutics like for example car t cells things like that what's yeah. the uh, what's the hot thing in protein biochemistry well, you've identified some of them but i would say i would say more broadly hot things are like i said starting with 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 synthesis synthetic dna mm -hmm. synthetic rna mm -hmm. uh, can really allow one to do interesting things i'm biased of course i, I was the cso of a company that <laughs> did in vitro transcription <laughs> translation and many times when one is trying to overexpress weird proteins, they're toxic to the host. Mm. And you can get around that by just not even using living organisms to express mm. your protein. You can express it in a test tube by reconstituting mm -hmm. uh, uh, either yeah. the transcriptional machinery or the translational machinery or both. You know, yeah. you can do them coupled. That's interesting. But where, what I really think we're beginning to see, but I'm not sure it's quite ready yet, is predicting how proteins fold just from their yeah. primary sequence. And uh, obviously, uh, David Baker's lab at the University of Washington with its program mm -hmm. Fold It, which is very addictive if you haven't tried <laughs> it, uh, has, does a good job, of, has, has really done a great job over the years of not only predicting protein folds, but also now 
helping the Baker Lab look at enzyme design or enzyme redesign. To I mean, change. yeah, there's like yeah. alpha fold and stuff. I, I, what's the thing? I guess uh, for the listeners, what's what is what makes protein folding complicated? Right. I mean, it's there's so many iterations and well, it's 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 what, so but wait i want to pause guys what is even fold protein folding like i'm very superficial with my knowledge about protein okay well let me back so. up yeah, <laughs> yeah so i do need to i want you guys i was trying to find my moment to pause you and say wait explain the entire yeah. concept so, yeah. so 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 let me let me back up yeah please and uh, <laughs> This is this is interesting to describe without a gra- an infographic, mm-hmm. but let me try. Yeah. So uh, DNA uh, encodes proteins. Okay. And the bases in DNA, in pair, well, sets of three bases at a time, uh, encode twenty different building blocks of proteins. Mm-hmm. There are twenty mm-hmm. different building blocks of proteins. Well, actually, there's more than that, but there's twenty standard yeah. ones. Uh, that are called amino acids. Mm -hmm. And a protein is just a a bunch of amino acids strung together Mm -hmm. from end to end. Mm -hmm. So now you imagine this this linear assembly. It's not really linear, but just imagine it linear. Like polymer Uh, structure maybe? Can I say it? A protein is a polymer. It's a a polymer of amino acids. Yeah. Yeah. All attached. That's how I imagine it, honestly. Yeah, exactly. All attached end to end, right? So you could imagine this just stretched out as Mm -hmm. a string. Yeah. Uh, and each of those different amino acids has a different has different chemistry to mm-hmm. it. So they're the same in some ways, and they can snap together as building blocks. Mm. But then they have other chemistry chem- elements of chemistry hanging off the sides of them, mm-hmm. and they interact with each other and with things in the outer environment. Makes sense. And they interact with water. Mm. Uh, because proteins fold in water, they yeah. also, if they're enzymes, they catalyze chemistry. But that's why, like, when you say fold in water, exactly. Like, so, so you could have, a, you could have a, you could imagine a string, okay, right, of, of these amino acids, <laughs> yeah, just flopping around. Mm-hmm. But thermodynamically, that's not favored mm. uh, for so a number hydrophobic of hydrophobic or high home, like homophobic. There no, are, that's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's hydro and hydrophilic and hydrophobic. So, so, sorry. So there, so, uh, well, yes. I well, apologize. Part, yeah, no, no. <laughs> Those <laughs> homophobic <laughs> molecules. <laughs> Get out of here. They should not be in LA. <laughs> <laughs> so, so these uh, these these amino acids uh, have so they have they have different hydrophilicity mm-hmm. and hydrophobicity, and yeah. they have and different parts of them are hydrophobic or hydrophobic. But yeah. basically, the hydrophobic parts don't like to see water. Yeah. Grease yeah. likes to see grease. Yeah. So the greasy amino acids would like <laughs> to be sidled up against mm. each other. Okay. And then the amino acids that like to face water mm-hmm. like to be facing outward. They like to yeah. be facing water and they like to be interacting with salt molecules and, mm. and you know, or salt uh, ions. And, and so it's really a, it's really a, a quantum, a statistical thermodynamic exercise of how proteins fold and it's really really complex because because you know we see these ball and stick models but they're really continuous electron density Mm. and there's all sorts of quantum effects that happen so to put it bluntly proteins are driven to fold by wanting to minimize hydrophobic residues uh, touching water Mm. Uh, and however they have evolved to fold specific ways I see. So the very sequence of that, that the very linear sequence maps to a certain shape of a folded up structure that is the most energy, low energy state that 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 linear peptide can be 
folded up into. Mm. And, uh, and, and there, if someone wants to look this up online, there's great graphics. They're called energy well diagrams mm -hmm. because your protein can, a given protein can, you know, they're, they're dynamic. They're yeah. not, they're not like frozen turkeys. They're, mm -hmm. they, they move around. Yeah. And, and so they sample different conformations and a confirmation is just like a pose. So if one was doing yoga, uh, uh, and one was bent in a certain position, mm -hmm. that would be a confirmation to a protein. So they're dynamic, but they also fold in a certain way. And the way in which a protein folds obviously affects all the other chemistry that it, it, it is involved in. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it's, if it's a, a structural protein, that's something that helps build your cells, or if it's a structural protein like the spike protein of the COVID virus, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it it can fold certain ways, but it also cannot fold other ways. Uh, an interesting side effect of that is that not all parts of a protein can be mutated mm. and that protein still mm. fold as it had evolved to, which is why the spike protein from the COVID-19 virus cannot infinitely mutate. It's, mm. it's in fact constrained in, in areas where it can't mutate very, it can't be substituted very much. Yeah. Um, but, but going back to the, the interesting thing in protein folding yeah. is now there are computational tools and Google has gotten into mm -hmm. it and, and Microsoft and, mm -hmm. you know, name your big tech company. Mm -hmm. There are definitely programs where this massive computer resource, massive computer resources are being born on the problem of can one de novo take just a linear stretch of amino acids mm -hmm. and without knowing anything else about it, correctly predict how the protein will fold. Oh. And a step beyond that is predicting what chemistry the protein will catalyze. I mean, that with like quantum computer, I, I know one of the problems is that the sheer computing power of it is like, it's not too much. A, yeah, not yeah. A t unless we have yeah. qubits basically that allow you to process these like quantum level. So we are getting closer. So the, the protein, it's called the protein folding problem. Yeah. So it's not been definitively solved, but I, I think, I think that through a combination of brute force calculation and learning more empirically, because the empirical learnings we do about protein folding have been very helpful in this regard, mm -hmm. we, humanity will eventually at least more easily be able to say, based on a primary protein sequence, what it might look like and what chemistry mm -hmm. it might do. And, and, and we already can uh, in terms of predicting what chemistry it might catalyze, mm. but we usually have to know something about related proteins that have a sequence similarity. Yeah. But being able to step beyond that mm -hmm. and say, okay, we're, we're sequencing some deep sea organism and it, it, its genome encodes some proteins that have no sequence similarity to anything else that's ever been studied. What do those do? Because one of them could do chemistry that humans cannot do in a fume hood very well. In fact, a, a lot of natural product molecules that are important in medicine and industry mm -hmm. are made very well by enzymes and very poorly by humans. And so there's this great untapped economic and quality of life value really in all of the proteins that are encoded in the genomes of everything that lives, you know, from, from an elephant on one end of the scale to microbes on the other. And all this has evolved in deep time. And this encodes, it's, 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 it's really interesting. It's DNA encoded protein chemistry that then allows nature to make small molecules that a human organic chemist would have trouble making or might not even imagine. They sample, sample chemical space that 
a, a typical human sitting down at their lab bench wouldn't say, I'm going to go make that molecule. And so a selfish reason to preserve biodiversity is to preserve mm -hmm. the diversity of those protein sequences, the vast, vast majority of which we don't even know what they do. Mm. But some of them do things that are very useful, I guarantee you. Yeah. And, and so this whole, I think we're going to get to this point where we're going the design test build cycle is going to speed mm -hmm. up because we're going to have better hypotheses to say, okay, this piece of DNA that someone sequenced, I think that this makes yeah. the mm -hmm. next lipase that's going to be in, you know, a more environmentally friendly tide detergent, mm -hmm. you know, uh, clothing detergent or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, and, or this biosynthetic cluster is going to make a drug that had hitherto been extracted from plants yeah. that, and, and, and this, you know, this isn't easy to do like yeah. artemisinin an yeah. anti-malarial. Yeah. And so I think, that coupled with being able to print DNA cheaply mm -hmm. and then the rise of robotics in the lab instead of using grad students and postdocs as robots, mm. which uh, they're so cheap that they still often are used as <laughs> pipetting yeah. robots. But this this lab automation means that we can mm -hmm. uh, we can test these hypotheses and learn from them way faster. And I yeah. think we're going to see it truly is exponential. Yeah, so yeah. what I'm excited about is across different industries, that story right there, yeah. better predictions, easier testing through cheap DNA, cheap and and laboratory synthesizable yeah, yeah. DNA, and then um, better lab automation yeah. and software to handle the data. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's very interesting. I feel like we can go talk yes, about this yes. forever. Yes. Yes. Sorry. I... No, don't be sorry. I love this. I, I learned a lot just by listening to this. I do want to like to close sure. the chapter of your PhD life. I want to ask like more of a general question. Tell us more about getting into Duke. Like it's again, prestigious school, very competitive. You told me about your selection process. How did you, what do you think got you into the school? I still don't exactly know. Uh, although I did serve on a committee some years later that helped select graduate students for the program and had some insight into how that was done, at least at that time. And it seems to be the same, I think, in most schools uh, that have PhD programs in the sciences. and. I think in the order of importance, undergraduate research experience is weighted heavily, mm -hmm. especially if that comes with a letter of recommendation yeah. from a scientist who says, this person is suited you know, both intellectually and in terms of their ability to see things through and yeah. not give up too easily, which mm -hmm. is always the temptation in graduate yeah. school, yeah. Uh, to go into this program. So I think mm -hmm. that the letters are the most important. I see. Uh, followed by GPA, mm -hmm. followed probably by basic minimal scores in the yeah. GRE. Yeah, but yeah. I don't think that that, that was a weed out. Mm -hmm. So it, it just, it, it, it cut out people who had poor mathematical skills yeah. or not quite up to par, you know, verbal and written skills yeah, yeah. Uh, but but really that's a weed out that's not the driver yeah uh, i think that i think sense. it was you know uh, undergraduate gpa uh, to an extent but really those letters are important and so i really value letter writing yeah and that's a duty that uh you know all of us should take seriously for our trainees mm -hmm. although i did say for some people who worked in my research groups in industry in the past who wanted to then go to phd programs mm -hmm. i said look you have to get a second opinion. Because if I write you this letter, this will help you get in. Mm -hmm. But I don't want you to come to me five years later with $300 in your checking account, like I had in my fifth year, eating ramen on like New Year's Eve and say, why on earth am I doing this? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't want them to be mad at me. So I, I, I ask for second opinions and then I write the letters. <laughs> yeah. 
but but that probably was the most important yeah. thing that letter mm. all right so to close the chapter one advice you would give to this young listener submitting his phd publication right now out of your experience i would think very carefully about opportunity cost in time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i often wish i could get my 20s back mm. now granted my experience because it was in a program that unexpectedly had a huge scientific fraud scandal in it mm -hmm. and there was some toxicity and i'm you know for a good period of time i was depressed because i was not sure how long my thesis advisor was going to live or even if mm, i would be able tough. to finish my phd with him because everything yeah. was thrown up in the air uh by by his health uh, uh problem yeah. and and so That's it was a lot a, of stress to do with apart from you like writing your dissertation it yeah. was it was worse than it was probably more challenging than than many experiences wow, yeah. but i wouldn't say that it's unique and uh especially with respect to toxicity in academic departments mm -hmm. it was yeah. that part was not so unique yeah and uh so it, it takes a toll mm -hmm. and if i could if i was convinced that i wanted to trade my 20s for a phd yeah. again <laughs> uh, i would sit down with my with even before joining a lab mm -hmm. and say i want a primary thesis project and i want a backup project and i want to be able to work on the backup project simultaneously oh wow uh, because it's important my back i didn't think of that when i started my phd but yeah, well, it's never too, it's never too late it's never too late you well, can I have one year left i don't know <laughs> okay that's too late yeah, <laughs> yeah. Should, uh, it's too uh, late it's too late yeah. <laughs> but but as you know getting things set up and working is the hard part and yeah. sometimes when you're doing when you're dealing with novel biology mm -hmm. you discover that a system just is not amenable to the tools that one has at yeah. their fingertips and that makes it so it feels really unfair in a graduate program when you have another student down the hall who's the 10th grad student who's worked on a very advanced project that all the obvious next experiments are planned out and yeah. they can just plug and chug and crank out data and papers and go on their way but you actually so so one thing is you one one piece of advice is you have to be willing to make that that time trade off and since you're making that tried time trade off try to put some time into your personal life which i absolutely did not i mean i did not go on a date between the years 2007 and 2013. Oh wow. Um and <laughs> wow. that's that was wow. that was very bad for the psyche uh, in part because I was like too poor to socialize. Yeah. But really no one is one shouldn't get dragged down by one's mm. by bad things that would happen yeah. in one's work life. And I so I'd say work life balance uh mm -hmm. is important if you're going to if you're going to make the plunge. Yeah. Negotiate your thesis project up front to mm -hmm. have a backup built in in case mm. the first one crashes and burns. <laughs> I love that uh, one. That's very interesting. Yeah, uh, that's a unique. Another one uh is if you want to go to industry, mm -hmm. be in a target rich environment. Mm. and we can talk about that if we talk about my postdoc yeah. if you want we're to do gonna, that but but, but target rich yeah. environment so yeah. you have to be yeah. strategic yeah, yeah and yeah. Mm -hmm. and and the most important thing mm -hmm. is be honest with your thesis advisor about what you want to do mm. maybe even before you work for them because some some faculty are fine if you want to get your phd and then go into teaching at a four-year university mm -hmm. or even a senior high school teaching position yeah. some think that that's leaving science Mm. Uh some are only happy if one is on a track to be a tenure track researcher mm. at at a big R&D school yeah. and also consider going to industry leaving science. Yeah. So you want to ask yourself what do I see myself doing even if you don't know the answer yeah. 
and pick an advisor who's going to be on your side. Mm -hmm. I love that. Uh, my that's, thesis advisor uh, had a sandwich. I'm learning actually by this. By the time. Even though it's too late for me, I was still learning. Well, well they, pass, it, pass it along. They might say, they might say, oh, you want work-life balance? Well, you know, if your work is your life, then it's balanced. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've, I've heard that. I, I, we'll discuss that yeah. later. But, but a, um, uh, you know, and, and then a, another part of that is, uh, you know, really work with your mentor to help plan mm -hmm. what your career is going to look yeah. like afterwards. And, and my advisor, I was really lucky because, and one reason I did ultimately join his lab is that he had an unusual career in that he was a, a tenure track faculty at the University of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, got full, became, became a full professor there. Mm -hmm. And then in the early nineties, got recruited to be head of R and D at Merck. Mm. And uh, he he was. And, what is Merck again? Sorry for my uh, Merck Pharma. Oh wow, yeah. Uh, yeah. So Merck and Co. Yeah. And uh, um, not to be confused with the German Merck, which is the same ancestral company, but mm -hmm. there's a U.S. You know, there's a yeah. Merck Pharma, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, he was head of R and D for that, uh, a, a VP for basic research. And he did it, in his words, to, quote, earn money so his daughters could go to college. Mm. <laughs> I, I think he may yeah. have done better than that. Yeah. Uh, uh, but he, he, he stayed there until uh, uh, it ceased to be fun because yeah, there was yeah. this golden period at that company in his view. Mm -hmm. and, then, uh, and then he went back to academia, and that's when he went to Duke. Uh, so he had had a foot in both yeah, worlds, yeah, and he yeah. was totally supportive of that. Yeah. Uh, All right. So Lewis is now Dr. Lewis. He finished his Ph.D., Let's go on to decide. You, you, you. We see that you went to do your postdoc, postdoc at UCSF. So, what is like? Tell us, like, what is even postdoc? Well, and how did that happen? How did that happen? Some people still like discuss this topic. Like, what is postdoc? Well, it's a very good question because it's never been very. It's never been carefully defined. Mm -hmm. Many people. Is it a degree, for example? Sorry, cut you. It is, is not it a not? degree. You see, it like, yes. It, 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 it's. It's like a medical residency, mm. but without a with a very personalized program, without a standardized program of training, and for which one receives no particular qualification <laughs> at the end. So you do not get a with certificate. Very low pay, I would say. Right, a lot, oh. of my, a lot of my research friends argue that they like they don't pay you enough. So other people call it indentured servitude. And uh, mm -hmm. so, so serfdom, so, serfdom, <laughs> and, wow. and 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 the the postdoc situation is very it's it's very troublesome, but mm -hmm. it evolved from a pretty benign thing. Mm. So uh, when my when my thesis advisor was a grad student, uh, it was typical for someone to do their PhD in maybe I don't know four to six years, yeah, and then afterward they would spend a year at a lab that did some work that was ad adjacent to their their doctoral work, but was a little bit different. And the idea is it would give them some exposure to another field and cross-pollination of mm -hmm. their you know, deeper training with a field that could use someone with, with those insights. So yeah. it was a broadening one's horizons sort of appointment, yeah. but it was also meant to be very temporary, mm -hmm. a year. Mm -hmm. And he actually did two postdocs, each a year long, mm -hmm. which one does not hear of anymore. Yeah. And and, and that was the original plan. And there was no certification at the end of those postdocs. Uh, typically, a postdoc ends when someone publishes something with their postdoctoral advisor. Mm -hmm. And But the question is, what does that something have to be? Yeah. And the answer to that depends on who the advisor is. Mm. And, and it can mean five or six or seven or a years or a decade as a postdoc. And in fact, 
in my postdoc lab, which was a structural biology lab, uh, which tended to have long experimental arcs. So the time mm -hmm. from when you start the project to when you get something publishable was very long, uh, combined with the fact that it was membrane protein, uh, uh, um, membrane protein structural biology, which is a layer of difficulty Mm -hmm. uh, worse than just regular soluble protein x-ray crystallography. And people often stayed there longer than their PhDs. Mm -hmm. So they were there five to seven years. And there was no way I was doing that. And so when I was trying to choose between postdocs that I had interviewed at, yeah. uh, UCSF was really tempting because I already knew the lab that I was going to join. Uh, they like me, I like them. Uh, and I could sort of take an extension off of my thesis project and drive it in the structural mm. biology direction. Yeah. And so, uh, but I was horrified by the cost of living. Like I had oh, to yeah. sell my San car. I, I had to sell oh, my no. car because <laughs> I didn't have, I couldn't afford the parking fee. Wow. And uh, at UCSF at the time I worked there, uh, the stipend was 42K a year in downtown SF. What year was this? Uh, 2010 through 12. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it, it's gone up a little, but maybe yeah. it's fifty. Uh, That's crazy. And to uh, live in the, the top, real, like the most expensive real estate in the world. So the students, yes, and the yeah. students there, uh, and and the postdocs had to live in in postdoc dormitories. Mm. So there was campus housing that reduced cost, but it was like living in a dorm. Yeah. And I thought to myself, what have I done wrong in life? <laughs> if I'm 28 years old and I have a random roommate. <laughs> And yeah, uh, and that's and, like when you're 18, 17. But yeah, yeah. there's that there's that Oscar Wilde quote. It's like when I was young, I thought money was the most important thing. Now that I'm older, I know that it is. <laughs> well, it, 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 it was it, that made that certainly made life difficult. And yeah. uh, and I sort of objected to going there. And it, and just on that on that basis, I thought, well, this is this is mm -hmm. going to be an unpleasant quality of life. But yeah. my thesis advisor wisely said, no, you really mm. need to take that position mm -hmm. at UCSF mm. because he said, you know, I was looking, I, I, Vanderbilt looked really interesting. Yeah. I was interested in uh, a structural biologist there and she was really yeah. great. But in the end of the day, I chose UCSF and it, the tiebreaker was that my thesis advisor normally wrote one sentence emails mm. because he was busy. So he, he was famous. Two. He was famous. <laughs> he was famous. No, he wrote paragraphs. Wow. And so I was, yeah. he wrote this uncharacteristically long rationale for, for why he made his suggestion. He said, look, if you don't want to be there five or 10 years and you want to cut it short, you are in a target rich environment for biotech and biopharma. Mm -hmm. Go to where the targets are in industry. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. You know, and I'm glad I listened to him yeah. because when we did get my postdoc advisor, Bob Stroud, great guy, mm -hmm. uh, he was the, not the one that chose the salaries. So, you know, this is NIH policy. This is university policy. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you can't always blame the PIs for that. And so uh, as much as I'll say UCSF took advantage of its postdocs, like yeah. every big university does, uh, to generate data from which they harvest government grants. Uh, and then they take half the grant as overhead to keep the lights on. But really that gets shunted to hiring, mm -hmm. uh, you know, superfluous administrators and you know building fancy gym facilities and mm -hmm. stuff like that mm -hmm. uh yeah, so yeah. so it's it's uh he was a great guy and we got you know some nice work published and then he sat down with me and you know poured some good single malt because he likes that <laughs> and said so in your next few years here 
And I said, no, no, uh, I'm, I'm like applying for industrial jobs. Yeah, we've, yeah. we've, you know, we've submitted this manuscript. Uh, it's going to be reviewed. It'll probably be accepted. I'm not waiting. Yeah. Uh, and that's when I started applying for industrial yeah. jobs and uh, ended up taking one in, at Novartis Infectious Diseases. Oh. Do, do you think, I mean, kind of doing the postdoc, going through these institutions, do you think that um, the state at which that their progression right now, do you think that it is going towards a good place or do you think they're just the same old like are they becoming more progressive with the ways that they educate their researchers or are they still misleading it or how do you think the from a bureaucratic point of view it's, how do you think they're growing it's very hard to tell uh, i would say that the basic model hasn't changed mm -hmm. and it needs to one I, one positive thing i'm seeing is that belatedly but better late than never graduate programs are beginning to start educating their graduate students that there are other career options than becoming a tenure track faculty. And I think that that's really useful because that can mm -hmm. allow someone who really wants to be a four-year university or college teacher to develop a teaching portfolio mm -hmm. and go on, for instance, a three-month sabbatical with their thesis advisor's permission to, to develop a portfolio. Mm -hmm. So that a couple years later when they get their PhD, they will not be starting de novo mm -hmm. on trying to convince someone that they can enter a teaching track. Mm -hmm. And so this messaging that there are plenty of other paths to happiness and success than being a, a, a tenure track researcher at a university is really important. That also includes talking, you know, teaching students about roles in industry, uh, roles in nonprofits, uh, roles in government. I mean, there's really a strong need uh, for government uh, work in the science. So, and then policy, there's even, there's, mm -hmm. there's, there's all these opportunities yeah. and people don't see their PhD skills as transferable. They think, oh, I oh, am an right. expert at this or that pathway. And really you learn many other things and there's so many other things you can do. Who would you blame on that? Like, would you blame the institution or like the person not doing enough of his homework to, to know how to relate his research? Uh, I would, a little of both, but I'd 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 add to that one's peers and mm -hmm. social pressure. I see because there were at both Duke and UCSF yeah. uh, a significant there was a significant contingent of of graduate students and postdocs that what I called uh, they were what I called true believers. Mm. So they thought if they just got one more science nature cell paper, <laughs> even mm -hmm. if it was like after a five year PhD and a seven year postdoc, and they're yeah. still you know, Sisyphus. <laughs> Sisyphus, exactly. Uh, they could then compete for one of maybe 20 or 30 appropriate open faculty positions in in the country at mm. any given moment against hundreds of other candidates. Yeah. And, and eventually people, many people never see that that's not mm. the case. And so they're what we used to call perma postdocs. You can get comfortable in that role, especially if you have a spouse that has a better paying mm. job yeah. and just never leave it. But it's yeah. own mm -hmm. its own little universe. But if you leave for industry, I remember there were people who said to me, you're leaving science. Mm. When I told them I was going to Novartis Infectious Diseases and I said, no, I'm not leaving science. I'm applying science to human health. That's mm. not leaving science, that's yeah. doing science. And uh, uh, really, so there's, a, there's, there's pressure. Yeah. Uh, and then for universities, of course, they would like their grad students and postdocs to hang around as long as possible because that stipend, yeah, that comes out of the bottom line, mm -hmm. but the, 
the research that those students and postdocs produce, you know, that's a commodity. Yeah. And that harvests grant dollars that the university, it's mm. big business is yeah, what it is. Yeah. Uh, so would you think then to, to kind of close that, would you think that the institu institutions are preparing these young scientists to become a next Einstein? And to you, who would you define Einstein in our modern world? Ah, a very interesting question. It, it, it gets at a larger issue, I think, of, you know, our question is, should we even be, we will occasionally find Einsteins, mm -hmm. but I think the model of the lone genius scientist mm -hmm. is really not descriptive of how science works. Ooh. It's how the public thinks science yeah. works. And yeah. there are certain theoretical physicists, such as Einstein, mm -hmm. who really came up in with many de novo ideas yeah though he did stand on the shoulders of others which he who, who he acknowledged yeah. uh, in fairness mm -hmm. uh some a lot of scientists are really bad at acknowledging collaborators and really bad at acknowledge, acknowledging that they are part of a step a progression mm -hmm. you know they were always yeah. there were people that did hard work mm -hmm. before them that made yeah. their work possible and so that's why when we without saying that these people didn't deserve the Nobel Prize. I think many Nobel laureates receive the Nobel Prize, but really that prize is the work of all of their postdocs and grad students, in many cases for decades, mm -hmm. alongside theirs. Mm -hmm. And really it, it should be more of a collective achievement, mm -hmm. if yeah. you will. And, and, and also, if you look at uh, uh, the Nobel Prizes, uh, I think around 2007, 2008, the Nobel Prize for uh, green fluorescent protein, you know, the mm -hmm. fluorescent yes, proteins yes, yes. was given out. Mm. And the guy who actually discovered GFP mm -hmm. uh, was running a lab uh, at uh, Woods Hole uh, at, at the time that he made this discovery. Mm -hmm. And in his paper on green fluorescent protein, which uh, he discovered in, I think, a, a, a glowing jellyfish, I'm pretty yeah. sure. Uh, jellyfish. We were talking about them the other day. <laughs> uh, they're, immortal, they're immortal. Immortal. <laughs> right? There's like immortal jellyfishes. We're kind of relating that to CRISPR. Oh, I see. Can be yeah, immortal. I see. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, yeah. well you, you take their DNA. <laughs> you could be an immortal glowing jellyfish. Too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we'll just add features. Glow and never die. You know. <laughs> so, so, so this 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 discoverer of GFP and his yeah. name is escaping me at the moment, but everybody should know it, but they don't. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, he, in his paper on describing this, the gene and the gene product, said in his discussion section what it would be used for. He mm -hmm. was aware that this would be change molecular biology, mm. right? And then he lost his grant funding yeah. and he had to wind down his lab. And then he worked for NASA for a few years, but when he wound down his lab, uh, some other researchers who'd read his paper said, hey, you know, since your lab, your lab is dissolving, could you send us your clones, you know, and your, some of the, mm -hmm. the things from your freezers, right? Yeah. He said, sure. And because they wanted to carry on the research. Mm -hmm. So when it was time to hand out the Nobel prize, it was given to three people Mm. But it's usually not split four ways. I see. And the three other professors were people who had all built on this original guy's discovery, but they were tenured faculty and had successful long-term wow. careers. Mm. They split the Nobel Prize. Do you know what the guy that, that did the work was doing? Mm -hmm. when, when reporters found him, he was working as a shuttle driver uh, at a car dealership, wow. uh, shuttling 
customers wow. around. Wow. And yeah. in, I think it was somewhere in Tennessee. And actually a movement developed to like find a job for this guy because wow. at no fault of his own, he had made a key discovery, yeah. but he didn't get credit for it because he wasn't institutionally the right person. And uh, uh, yeah. and they interviewed him and he said, well, he said, I don't feel bitter. He said, I just hope that if any of these these three Nobel laureates happen to come through my corner of the country, someone buys me a nice dinner. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that, that that's and, just like I, yeah. I I mean, that's such a powerful scientific ethic like mm. to to uphold. It's kind of like like Grigory Perlman, the mathematician. It's just like. I don't need this instant like it's about what I've done. Please don't applaud me for it. It's like it's built upon people. This is what I've done because it's my passion. Yeah. And, and science is a group effort. Mm. So, for instance, if I couldn't trust the claim when I worked in pharma, mm -hmm. uh, not everyone really paid attention to the department in our in my building that did our laboratory glassware that mm -hmm. cleaned it. But if you can't trust the cleanliness of your glassware, oh, yeah. you can't trust anything. And so everybody that's involved plays a role. And I think that we as scientists, and I've been guilty of this myself sometimes, don't adequately discuss how much this is really a group effort. Mm. And, and so I really see science as, as collective advancement. Mm -hmm. And, and if, you're, if you were, if you're a scientist that gets into it looking for impact factors mm. or yeah, looking yeah. To, to collect as many science nature cell papers as you can, that might get you into a tenure track faculty position somewhere. Does it yeah. mean that you're particularly brilliant? No. Does mm. it mean that you're strategic? Yeah. Uh, you know, yes. yes. But, but I don't think that that's a readout on the quality of science. I think some of the best scientists, in fact, are the people that were conductors of an orchestra mm. that brought together talent that was maybe better than their own yeah. to do something that was bigger than all of them. And I, I'm not advocating building atomic bombs, yeah. but if you read, if you read bios of, of Oppenheimer, mm -hmm. uh, J. Robert yeah. Oppenheimer, he had, he was a scientist who knew. Just to recheck, he's the one that created the atomic bomb. Oversaw right. the project. He was the oh, civilian. Okay. Uh, Just double checking with yeah, he, yeah. he and a general, Leslie Graves, mm -hmm. uh, together were like the co-leaders of the Manhattan Project. Mm -hmm. uh, but Oppenheimer was in charge of recruiting the scientists, structuring the team. Oh. Um, uh, dealing with the friction of egos mm -hmm. and just it's a if you ever get to read it in literature in that space it's a fascinating story of what they had to build in a mm. short period of time yeah and you know i won't we won't i won't, don't want to say that i like the outcome <laughs> yeah. uh but but it, it was you can't get around the fact that that was a big uh, a big invention yes yeah. uh and led to many positive things on the side you know nuclear energy being you know, arguably still very useful. Uh, but but anyway, uh, that was that was a, an assembly of the right people. And mm. it was greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And Oppenheimer did that. Mm -hmm. uh, now, he was thanked, thanked by being accused of being a communist by a jealous uh, 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 colleague later and mm. ended up, you know, losing his security clearance. And, uh, you know, the, the second part of his life was pretty sad, mm -hmm. even though he was a hero scientifically and uh, and he was a great community builder. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that that that's that's what we should think of science is uh, scientific. The yeah. best science is a community effort. Yeah. And it should be recognized as such. I love that. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's cool to go into, um, you know, what, so what are you doing right now with your current companies? I mean, you work at, you have your fingers in so many pots. I do. It's it's complicated, and and some of the some of the some of the pots I'm not allowed to name. Uh, yeah. So I do advising, uh, you know, for some uh, biopharma companies in the biopharma space, but also in the synthetic biology space. Uh, one of which uh, I can put a plug in for uh, Lollyware is actually using uh, seaweed polymers to make compostable plastics. So not my not the not exactly what I ever thought I'd be you know, Advising doing, for, but, yeah. but, uh, there's, there's a certain, you know, synthetic biology component to it. And then there's a talent, uh, talent and team resourcing and acquisition component to it. And that's a transferable skill. So when people are going to grad school, uh, you know, they, they might think, well, there's a whole industry around helping scientific companies build out their teams. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, so I'm doing many different things, uh, with a former colleague from Novartis, my friend Mika, uh, computational chemist. Uh, he and I are have a micro VC firm mm-hmm. uh, called Deepfuse that we are trying to raise you know, money and develop a track record. Uh, but we're not trying to do this in a way that causes us to take LPs who we don't get yeah, along with. Yeah, you want I, kind of an ideological and alignment. We want an ideological sorts. alignment, but we also want and to be able to educate. Mm-hmm. So there's, as you all know, there's a great deal of people with tech money yeah. that want to play in the biological space. They want mm-hmm. to play with engineered biology. And I think the pandemic has even uh, accelerated. Yeah, there's yeah. this there's this adoption uh, of like lay, like laymen who didn't know these terms before are now like, oh, PCR? Like, yes, ooh. yes. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and among those people, there is often a misunderstanding that because DNA can be printed, Engineering biology is just like programming, yeah. And it is in no way like programming. In 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 well, in a few ways it is, but but most people's code doesn't mutate and do chemi- <laughs> doesn't mutate and do chemistry with itself and do chemistry with the exogenous environment in ways that are not fully understood. Mm. And uh, and so it's so much more complicated than that. And as a consequence. If you want to play in investing in the bio, in in new platforms in biology and chemistry, it requires a level of patience that most investment vehicles are not set up for. So typically, an investor, an LP, wants to harvest their investments within a span of ten years, mm-hmm. and not all at the end of those ten years. And that is probably not how one should invest in platform plays in in biotech, because uh, to give you an idea. From first concept to a drug is often 15 or 20 years. I mean, that's the average, and it can be even longer. Uh, and that's in the biopharma space. It's you know shorter timelines if you're building a platform that maybe helps you discover enzymes that have industrial or ways to do green chemistry, right? There's and you license those enzymes. Mm-hmm. So and if you're making a consumer product like seaweed polymers, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, into plastics, that's a, even a shorter R&D arc, but it's still pretty long. Mm-hmm. And so all of these investments require the investor to wait longer to harvest their investment. And that makes people nervous. So the key mm-hmm. thing is describing to potential funders of your VC firm why this is different than investing in apps. Mm. Uh, because you can scale the development of an app to a certain extent by just saying, oh, we need to raise a bridge round so that we can hire a bunch more 
coders or you know, and the overhead is people. lower. The overhead it, it is intrinsically scalable, but the overhead is scalable. Yes, yeah. mm-hmm. and and it's not always discovering new biology sometimes is not scalable yeah. and and often it's it's a random well it's a not quite random walk but there are many random aspects of it and so it, it really requires investor fortitude and education and so yeah. we're trying to do that and then you know the other the other thing to teach people is that you have to do deeper diligence mm. and so when big firms are putting money into like a series A or later they can hire uh, or often have in-house scientific diligence mm-hmm. groups, you know, groups of analysts, PhDs, and 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 do real deep diligence on the tech. Um, but for the very early stage companies, most of the funds that put money into those, it's not worth their while. You know, they they don't they can't justify having a huge in-house, uh, uh, you know, R and D diligence and team mm-hmm. diligence effort. And so there's this there's this sort of unmet need in this mm-hmm. space between you know from pre-seed to like series a mm-hmm. uh pre-seed seed series a in there I-, I won't name names but i've seen a lot of vc firms that play in the biotech space make investments that if they'd done just a little bit of diligence they would not have made uh and and that includes the team too mm-hmm. if you have a founder of a biotech company that wants to set up that company as like an academic lab you know, you don't. I don't yeah. want to invest in someone who's playing professor. You can have a company limp along forever on Dandai Luda funding if you're good at writing grants, uh, and but then you essentially have an academic lab erected as a company, yeah. and you know that can turn out well, but it's really not good for your workers mm-hmm. because almost none of them signed up to like get paid academic wages to work in industry and have their stock mm-hmm. options worth nothing, uh, and then. Uh, and then also from the investor standpoint, you know, you don't want to touch a company like that with a 10 foot pole. So it becomes really important to get to know the founders of, and, and get to know the checks and balances that exist in the company, because it's, it's key, I've discovered, to have a team where there's not a sole founder that controls the majority of, mm-hmm. of you know, the shares or the, the board membership, mm-hmm. uh, because the best decisions in these cases are arguments where people have to justify their positions to each yeah. other. So anyway, so I'm so Mika and I are looking a lot at thoughts about how do we do team diligence and how do we in, educate LPs that the whole spray and pray model. I don't know if you've ever heard this phrase, yeah, but it's a good it's one. Not, yes. Yeah. It, it, there's there's just a thoroughness to science that like um, and, and the interesting thing, I, one of the questions I want to kind of ask is where, um, you know, a lot of these venture companies like the science that actually comes out um there's no way that they would have funded these things originally to begin with right we have all this foundational research that happens something like crispr would any of the vcs that exist currently be like oh let's invest in these scientists to you know like (laughs) study this for 15 years depends on what stage uh i think i think that that investors are becoming more savvy that investing in some basic research mm-hmm. as long as it's focused uh, in an early stage company, in fact, builds you know, potentially valuable IP or uh, trade secrets. Uh, but, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a symbiosis between industry and academia. Mm-hmm. And when academia is sick, which I think it is, 
you know, it's a pyramid scheme and it incentivizes like taking advantage of grad students and postdocs mm. by keeping them on too long, Whoa, uh, not yeah. to their benefit. And then it produces too many trainees who aren't given guidance about what they're going to do with their lives uh, if they don't become a research faculty. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think at the same time, a healthy industry, a healthy academic ecosystem is really important for industry for the reason that you mentioned, which is that there are certain there's certain basic research that uh, even Novartis Pharma might not fund. Yeah, no internally. one. Yeah, no one would have funded crisp like conceptually. It's like an accident. Well, I wouldn't call it an accident. It's just more like it was serendipitous. It was yeah. an observation that turned into an observation that became something very important <laughs> like, and, and yeah. which is why it's good to always uh, look for the unexpected in your results or that is to say experiments that don't work or give weird results are sometimes there's something hidden something in there. something hidden in there but uh, hence we get back to creativity mm -hmm. uh, but and certainly thinking creatively about what CRISPR could be used for uh, was one of the key triumphs of that that discovery uh, by the different teams that 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 independently discovered it uh, and I would say, however, that universities, despite the press releases they occasionally make, to the contrary, are not set up to discover drugs and then design drugs from those initial hits. Mm -hmm. and, and some have played in this space, and they just really are not set up to do that. So, so you really need both to be health healthy in, in, from a biopharma standpoint. And also universities generally are not in the business of scaled synthetic biology or mm -hmm, biological mm -hmm. engineering. You want your... your uh, That's where capital comes capital. in. Like it's it, the it, scaling of it. Well, it's tech. not just the capital, but there's unique, there's unique expertise mm -hmm. in, in these scale-ups. Yeah. And, and so you really, you really have to have both sides of the equation. And so, yeah. so I also would say to the people in industry that, are, that say, oh, well, academia is an ivory tower. Well, it's too much of one, I would say, for, sh for certain. And it would be really nice. I would like to see more you know, private-public partnerships. Uh, uh, and there are uh, some really good ones, but more of those. Uh, but also that healthy academic culture is necessary for making the most of those academic discoveries in mm -hmm. practice. And also, but on the flip side, in industry needs to be viewed as not leaving science, but rather as a valuable practical application of basic discoveries. And so they're both equally important. Yeah, I think that, um, and this is probably the more touchy question where, you know, we go to CRISPR, okay, you had this technology that we all know is embroidered in these massive, was, is, there's a lot of going, like a lot going on around its patent disputes. Um, what do you, I guess, what's your, what's your take on it first? Like what's happening in the CRISPR space, how the fact that they've had these disputes are they are, is this specific dispute at the beginning worth having? And how has that actually held a lot of industry back when this thing came out? Like when this big technology came out? Well, I'll use a harsh word, a harsh <laughs> phrase, but, uh, patent troll. Uh, yes, and and university tech tra trans transfer offices really want to make sure that they're not leaving anything valuable on the table, mm -hmm. and so it's important to not always ascribe to the faculty members in whose lab such discoveries were made with the aggressiveness uh, yeah, with which they're yes. uh, they're protected, and 
and and I, I I'll follow up with that later on a, a quick reflection of business versus academia and the different regulations uh, mm -hmm. applied to each of those, but. Uh, for better or worse, research universities see themselves as uh, businesses uh, that both harvest grant money uh, using an army of postdocs and grad students getting paid slave wages, uh, but they also uh, make use through licensing and make money from uh, these various different mm -hmm. discoveries. And so that's that's led to uh, a, a huge growth in funding and staffing of tra tech transfer offices, and uh, and they invest in patents. And so what what ends up happening, however, is that these patents are often not; they're sometimes not even particularly strong. And mm -hmm. and it's with CRISPR, there's a there's a priority of discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, contention that's very difficult to unravel, especially since the U.S. moved from uh, a first to uh, invent patent regime to a first to file. And I believe that kind of happened when during at about the same time this this dispute yeah. was unfolding. Uh, yeah, I think it, I, it's kind of like um, one of the I guess just the ethic, the ethical piece of the logic for me that becomes kind of strange is almost the fact that that universities have these patents. Basically, the way I see it is everything is publicly funded. So oh, in the is. sense yeah. that yeah. The, the university was funded by the Tax people, payers. by the NIH, which is funded by the taxpayers, you know, the university, the lab, the grants that they're receiving, all of that technology has been funded by the people. And so but then it is patented by the university and then it is basic like where does that come from and i guess historically that was like the bay dole act it used to be owned by the government it used to be owned by the people yeah, and so people, yeah. to, to me there's like a there's this almost like weird my logic falls apart there because it's like well if it's all owned by the people then when wh why does it suddenly convert into this private thing and then now everyone's double dipping well I mean, I, I would like to see see a change in policy where, in fact, no IP can be can be uh, um, developed for publicly funded research. It has to, or, or yeah. IP, it has to, it has to belong to the taxpayers who funded it. Yeah, if now, you're like, uh, if you're Novartis and you're doing something in your company, this, I just then, want to add something. Yeah. I want to play the devil's advocate in it. Do you think that there's going to be an incentive to be? progress like to progress really fast in research when you tell them that hey you know what you can never patent it well because a lot of people kind of thrive for that they're like i want to patent this as an engineer as a like in science in general well it it it, it sort of depends what type of science one is patenting mm -hmm. so for instance if it involves so uh, my a friend who i just visited who's uh, a uh, medicinal chemist mm -hmm makes a clear distinction between drug discovery and drug design. And mm -hmm. discovery, you go on a fishing expedition in a library of molecules to find molecules that are drug-like that, that inhibit your particular target, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if then, and you, then maybe you take that molecule as a starting point. But now your medicinal chemist gets to work on it, and she or he, like, installs extra parts to that chemical and mm -hmm. really redesigns it. That's not drug discovery. That's drug design. Mm -hmm. And I think that should be 
patentable Ooh. because it's a creative, it's creating something that hasn't existed before. Yeah. But yeah. if you're going to go into nature and say, oh, look, there's this, you know, deep, there's yeah. this deep sea, like, bacteria that lives <laughs> that lives with these these tube worms that grow on that, and you found you know, it it's mine yeah and now now that makes sense yeah yeah that's a, i love the explanation and now that that enzyme you know public money has been used to go collect the sample mm -hmm. and sequence it yeah. and then compare it to the other databases of related enzymes and annotate it as oh this is a special DNA polymerase. Mm -hmm. Well, now New England Biolabs or whatever you know big mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. lab company, you know they they license that enzyme from a university mm -hmm. and they go and sell it for like thousands of dollars a milligram. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah. You know, yeah the, when it should have just been free market. Yeah. Here's the enzyme. But, like. but but here's the thing: if for that sort of thing, that discovery of this chemistry in the environment, I actually would argue that. There's more value in having those discoveries be trade secrets, because when you go through all the trouble of patenting using enzyme X from a certain mm -hmm. hot springs mm -hmm. or a certain extreme file that you've discovered, someone yeah. has discovered somewhere weird. Half a year later, someone might discover a better version mm. somewhere else and you know, it really doesn't come down to who has the IP priority. It comes down to who can scale it up, who can yeah, characterize it, it and who can scale yeah. it and sell it. Yeah. So I think I think that that in many cases, uh, especially in biological engineering, if one is developing, you know, designing a novel strain, maybe you patent that, but maybe you don't. Maybe it's more efficient just to say we're going to scale this mm -hmm. and let the best version win. Right. Mm. And and that makes an arms race to go sequence. Mm -hmm. Sequence, yep. sequence all the parts of the world that haven't been sequenced, because mark my words, like we think of macroorganisms are the easiest things to that for us as humans to per appreciate their extinction mm -hmm. when there just aren't as many different colorful fish in the reef and the corals are dead. Uh, yeah. But but the microbes are also really important and that diversity is going away. Yeah. And and the the chemistry that these things do mm -hmm. can't is often of the sort that can't be reimagined by humans. So so we don't want to lose that. So it's really valuable. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I think that by not encouraging people to patent every every CRISPR orthologue, yeah. you're going to have people go out in nature, which they are doing, by the way. There's all these little companies now competing with, you know, the the, the initial CRISPR companies, the caribou sciences and so forth. Yeah. Because they've been like, okay, screw that. Mm. The patent can only... Yeah, it's 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 kind of it's it's so it's so weak defensibility when in reality like the patent it's it's almost like yeah synthetic form of protection when the reality is well to even implement all these things like you need teams of great scientists and infrastructure and manufacturing and all these other complex things that it's like the patent is the least of your concerns in a sense. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I dare say that all the litigants in the CRISPR legal wars would have been way better off using the money that they spent prosecuting those legal wars on advancing their various different discovery programs. Yep. And I would further say that those discovery programs probably wouldn't end up that much in competition and everyone would have done better mm. if they yep. had not engaged in that dispute, but they used a, a, a model from an old playbook. Mm -hmm. And maybe that whole, the whole CRISPR patent wars might be a, a lesson that there's so much work to be done that mm -hmm. one shouldn't worry that that one has to carve out yeah. a specific corner legally because 
there's 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 enough for everyone to do. Yeah, especially with biology, where it is kind of like, okay, you want to patent a gene? Sorry, it, it, it's so like from a conceptual framework, it's so hard to defend it. Which you know you were saying before. Um, obviously, like if you're an engineer, I invent this thing. Like it, it is what it is. But this in this case, it's like it's a bacteria. What do you want? <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. So so yeah, it's a it's a great question. And and you know to circle back to how that this idea that industry and academia are healthiest when they're in a symbiosis, but that also they have different roles and responsibilities. So universities historically have been funded mostly by public money. Mm -hmm. uh, and even, you know, if you look at both Western and Eastern cultures, these sorts of, you know, quote unquote research universities were funded with the support of governments mm -hmm. and for the greater good of their people. Uh, you know, however, because of that, universities have been often granted extraordinary independence. Yeah, so they're for instance, unregulated. They're not regulated as much. And that's certainly clear in employment law. But it's, it's, <laughs> yes, but it's definitely. I mean, there are, there are now unionized postdocs. I joined the UCSF postdoc union oh, wow. when I was there. Uh, well, a note on that later. But the uh, uh, this there really is, if one is going to take public money, then there is a different bar that one has to, to reach. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that one can't, a university shouldn't behave like a business because it isn't a business. You can't have your cake yeah. and eat you can't, it too. You can't have it both ways. Yeah. Mm. And if you're, in a biz if you're a business, you can't do lots of things that universities get away with doing. Mm. And so, so really, yes, it's, should we be, take public money and turn it into private profit? Uh, no. Yeah can, uh, yeah. can we still use public money to stimulate entrepreneurial work by scientists yeah. uh, through public funding of academic mm -hmm. research, most definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but wait, I just have to like again excuse my ignorance about this. So when a university owns a patent, so are they making the money goes to the university itself? Correct. Usually they get a revenue stream. Mm -hmm. So okay. usually, usually a university will 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 own a patent. But then one can say that okay, the university is a public university, so it's actually benefiting the people around it because. That could be a yeah, good that argument be, that, yeah, it, to what Guy was saying. It I could be, say. but often that revenue stream is, it doesn't always go to things that- It's not that, for more science. It's, it's, it's not necessarily- Admin. Uh, advanced, <laughs> yeah, like salaries. Yes. Or, so I'll, I, a low point in my life when I mm -hmm. was when I was at UCSF as a postdoc, mm -hmm. and I got an email um, from I, I think the title was deputy associate dean for technology development. I mm. kid you not. Uh, and this was like circa 2010. And remind, remember, my colleagues and all made my colleagues and I all made 42k a year, mm. or thereabout. And uh, this email was about these new things called iPads, and <laughs> and and it discussed how when we bought our iPads, this dean or. Uh, thought that we should download these various apps that would improve our productivity as postdocs. Mm. And I remember there was like a cranky comment that like drifted through the lab benches that I can't repeat on this podcast um, <laughs> because it was obscene, uh, very and, and creatively obscene. Uh, but you know, then this discussion in, in, uh, ensued among the postdocs in the lab and everyone was like, can you afford to buy an iPad? I can't. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, the Sacramento Bee, the newspaper uh, mm -hmm. in, from Sacramento, 
has a way that you can look up all public employees' salaries, mm. including UC administrators. Oh, wow. So we looked up at what this person got paid, and it was like 10x what we did as postdocs. Wow. And we were like, well, wait a minute. So we're, we're doing work that gets grant money to hire somebody to tell us to adopt technology that we're not even paid well enough to afford to do. <laughs> yeah. And and so so about these revenue streams, there could be rules attached to those revenue streams mm -hmm. by government action. So mm -hmm. you know, there there are ways to legislatively yeah. say like look, if a university, mm -hmm. a public university is getting public money or is is earning money back for the public from mm -hmm. a licensure, that has to be spent in certain ways. But right mm -hmm. now, that's not specified. Yeah. I, I, I would say, like, when it comes to this public thing, there's almost a, a necessity in keeping it open. Uh, but, you know, as we can see, because of this previous IP dance that's kind of implemented within their institutions, how do you think, what, what are some kind of incentives do you envision as promoting open science, like getting scientists to really, you know, push out a lot of a lot more content and, while feeling like they're protected from this edge case of, oh, well, it might be commercializable, even though that's a sliver of the work that they do? That's a great question. When when we first met and we were discussing SciFind, I think that platforms like yours really are part of the answer um, because if you look at the coding industry uh, or the, well, I mean, it, it's, it's hard to define, but people that work with computer code in one mm -hmm. you know, way, shape or form, they obviously are often doing proprietary work that they can't release, but they do build portfolios which are available on the internet in part by helping other coders, mm -hmm. uh, in part by sharing pieces of their personal code or things that have been declassified from past industrial work that they've yeah, done. Yeah, the, it and exists in like a separate space. Like this is a solution to a thing, not yeah. the specific thing that I did at work, but it, it's simply a fact of- Exactly. Of and if you go into biology and chemistry, it's there's there's not, you know, there's not like a GitHub. Mm -hmm. There's not a GitHub for and, and for these things. And and in particular, so many grad students and postdocs and junior researchers and even senior researchers in the corporate world die in the trenches, uh, <laughs> so to speak, because they're trying to re reproduce some finicky protocol from some famous lab. And maybe the protocol is badly written or key steps are left out, whether purposely or accidentally is always a matter of dispute. <laughs> uh, and they just can't get this stuff to work. Uh, well, if you could if you could get online to like SciFind or, you know, the, if you had a GitHub of biology and chemistry that was was a little bit like GitHub, you've got these you, you have sort of an incentivization to share expertise because that makes you an acknowledged subject expert by your peers yeah. by helping other people. And if you have a great protocol that you're not going to be violating your company's non-disclosure mm -hmm. agreement by posting, mm -hmm. uh, you can put that up there. And if it's useful to other people, it's going to get upvoted and commented on. And that, for me, if I was interviewing someone for, say, a protein biochemistry job in industry, mm -hmm. I would value that as much or more than scientific publications, because let's face it, once you're inside a, a big company, you typically can only publish when a, a project has been killed. Yeah. And, and that company is not going to pursue that space again. Uh, and so how do you judge scientists? But if you're a scientist who has a, a, an academic lab, you have a small group or a small army, depending on the size, 
of other people who are generating data and then writing their papers for you. So you generate all these papers. So counting papers doesn't capture. Yeah, it's kind of. Uh, yeah. I, I think the other cool thing is even if you look, even if you look at the existing uh, uh, mechanisms of like reputation and and social currency, um, having more better reproducible papers means that you're more likely to get cited anyways. So if you think about it, like if I'm trying to replicate protocols from 10 different papers um, and none of them work, then you're, none of them are getting the citation basically. So you're never, or I've created some Frankensteinian thing that I don't even know where I got what. And in the end, I'm like, well, I figured it out. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, no one, no one ends up getting it. And to me, being able to reproduce work is the hallmark of I mean, unless it's something crazy, like, you know, you're you're using the Large Hadron Collider or something. No one's going to reproduce your multi-billion dollar experiment. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the cost of irreproducible research, often because it isn't well described, mm -hmm. is uh, is very high. But it's mm -hmm. not it's not calculated. So companies don't keep a tab of how much time they've spent chasing their tail, so to mm -hmm. speak trying to get some famous paper to reproduce. And then in academia, it's even worse. I'm sure many of the listeners who have done academic research know of that colleague of theirs, or maybe it was even them, mm -hmm. who spent two years of their life at oh, some yeah. point trying, <laughs> trying to get you know, something to reproduce, and you don't get that time back. And then, so, so, so really, I think that having building these communities where there's an incentive to publish and, and, and to supplement existing mm -hmm. publications with how do you really do this yeah. uh, type protocols is really important. And you know, I'll also mention, if you look at most peer-reviewed journals, uh, the good ones and the mediocre ones and the bad ones, all of them have really limited space for methods. And, oh, yeah. The, and the... As, as what's been required to tell a story for a paper, to, you know, to assemble a scientific paper that's meaty enough to get published, uh, has become more than it used to be, then the methods become more. You might have a paper that has five entirely different lines of an experiment, some like stop flow kinetics, uh, some, you know, structural biology, like maybe, you know, x-ray mm -hmm. crystallography, some cellular engineering, you know, you it, it all in one paper. And th those methods can't be adequately described in the method section. And even, in, in fact, you might be surprised, but some journals even limit how much material you can put in your supplemental. Yeah, exactly. So, so my feeling has always been, and my thesis advisor was mm -hmm. insisted upon this, is we put all the methods that couldn't fit in the main papers methods uh, into the supplemental, and sometimes the supplemental section was in word count like much more than the, yeah. the manuscript. Yeah, and b because we wanted people, he That's insisted. Really cool. that I've actually never heard it in my field being in research like that you put the failed experiment in your supplementary. Well, you know, sometimes I mean I have seen it's even good to put warnings like sometimes you'll see this is rare but you'll see yeah. people that write when making this reagent it is very important to use it within x number of hours mm -hmm. uh, yeah like things and, like that and, like, like and, no one like tells you that in, in, i mean my field is engineering i don't really see that or maybe i'm not paying attention to the supplementary as much i guess well that's where the good stuff is <laughs> in fact uh i always download that alongside a paper yeah. because you one usually can't find all that you need to in the main manuscript, yeah. but for, but often one doesn't. And I've reviewed papers, of course. Mm -hmm. So even though I wasn't publishing very much when I was yeah. in industry because of what I studied, I was sometimes selected as a reviewer. Mm -hmm. And I would actually 
I reviewed great papers, yeah. but then no one skilled in the art could reproduce the paper from the information given. Yeah, and so I'd said, I emailed the editor and I said, look, uh, I would reject this paper unless they provide enough mm -hmm. me methods, at least in their supplementals, so that someone skilled in the art can reproduce this. Mm. Because given what's written here, I couldn't reproduce yeah. this. And uh, uh, and That's actually, powerful. mostly they com they did it, yeah, like because yeah. they wanted their paper to be accepted. Yeah, yeah. But I think that many reviewers do not insist upon that. Mm. Uh, and I don't think it made me popular with the editor <laughs> either. But, uh, but, 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 but that gets to another problem. I was anonymous, mm. so, uh, maybe we should, you know, one other thing about, about sharing methods and protocols in a community show yourself online <laughs> is, show to show your, is, is to show yourself. And, uh, Randy Sheckman, Nobel laureate in, uh, 2017, uh, great all around scientist, um, uh, uh, did an experiment. He set up a journal called eLife. Mm -hmm. And unlike most other scientific peer, you know, most other peer reviewed journals, uh, they did two things unusual. They gave you a, a thumbs up or thumbs down on whether they'd review the paper very quickly, like in a week, not months. Uh, and that was good. But the other thing they did is the reviewers were not anonymous to each other. Mm -hmm. So they were anonymous to the authors of the paper, but the editor and the group of reviewers who were reviewing that paper had to were able to see each other's comments, mm. which disincentivized what all too often happens is holding up a paper and then hurrying and scooping, you know, essentially re repeating the research in one's own lab yeah. while stalling the competitors. And so we have got to get to different peer reviewed, uh, peer reviewing models. models. Yeah. And, and especially with respect to protocols, uh, and methods, those often, you know, don't get quickly, re they're often an afterthought. In terms well, they of don't, you, they cannot, you cannot actually peer review methods because to review them, you have to do, do them. It. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. <It's> yeah. <laughs> the proof yeah. of the pudding is in the eating. So it doesn't matter how many times you read the yeah. paper, like it's not going to. <laughs> but even if you look at it and say, like there just simply is not enough information here to <laughs> yeah. reproduce this. Yeah. And so, so I, I think that it's, it's, it's an area that's ripe for disruption. Uh, and, uh, and it's also a way to build community, uh, mm. like, like in the, the, uh, the coding community. Uh, yeah. I love and, it. Yeah. yeah. But there isn't that for, for biological and chemical yeah. science. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. uh, it's, it's a, it's a key, key thing mm. to look forward to and build. Yeah. Ah, uh, Louis, there's a lot to ask you. You have, we have a lot to share, but unfortunately we're reaching yeah. an end. So we have an ending question sure. that is a bit interesting and we want to see what you would, would say about it. So I don't know if you ever played Sims or SimCity. Oh, yes. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, that'll make it easier. Okay, so I want you to imagine that you're given a key and a free reign to own your well-funded, amazing institute. Okay, it's filled with scientists, fresh graduates, postdocs, you name it and money is no object, okay? And I want you to paint us a picture of this institute, like walk us through it based on all these discussions we've had, what can be this better, utopia. what can one, Yeah, I want a utopian Dr. Lewis's vision of his university or research institute. Oh, so much, so much things like the top. So, so, yeah, this could so, go so, on forever, yeah, yeah. So, but so, kind of, so, yeah. So much canvas, uh, <laughs> uh, well, you're a painter too, so yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Let me let me think about this a second. Of course, but yeah. I think, I think if I had that institute, 
Mm-hmm. And you said money is no object. Yes. Okay. You got a lot. Uh, uh, Maybe not two point five trillion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> not, 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 not a national budget, but yeah, but yeah. but you so, can hire scientists. You can hire staff. Whatever. So so I'd have I'd have a few different areas of effort in that Ooh. institute. So one of them would be uh, built around this idea of humans have already changed the world in ways that we can't undo. Mm-hmm. And can we engineer biology to help us circumvent some of the problems we've created uh, and or bring some things in nature that are out of equilibrium mm-hmm. back to, to equilibrium? And, and so part of that would also be bioprospecting. So let's see if we can discover these rare enzymes or you know, do a better job of discovering the wealth that is encoded by the DNA mm-hmm. of nature. Because I think and 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 essentially functionalize that. Yeah. Uh, that that is that information is highly valuable, and our descendants will look back on us. I am certain and wish that we had we had learned more before we things had gone extinct that are not going to evolve again. Mm-hmm. And and in the end, that's chemistry. Who knows if the next drug for your kid or your your parent, sick parent or whatever, is coming from some you know microbe that like evolved in one place mm-hmm. uh, and under selective pressures we can't reproduce and then it is not doesn't exist anymore. And, and so mm-hmm. that useful molecule is gone, but you didn't even know that you lost it. So I think one branch of the Institute would really focus on that. Uh, another thing I'd like to do is to experiment with different types of graduate education. Mm-hmm. So could you, could you educate people in science? Because education and training are different things. And so mm-hmm. uh, you kind of do both in a graduate program. And I would, I would want to see if there could be a more, uh, a better use of time, mm-hmm. a more time efficient way to give people the training that they would get and education they would get in a doctoral program in the sciences, but expedite it a little. Yeah. Because I think that there were a lot of inefficiencies, mainly because we were necessarily used as we, we were robots. Mm-hmm. We spent 90% of our time or 99% of our time doing preparatory work mm. for the 1% of the time that the interesting experiments came. So <laughs> yeah. I think asking how do we, how do we get students away from drudgery mm-hmm. and, and put them on the, the more interesting path to design of experiment. And, yeah. and then a part of that would be, how do we take, can we do that that education and training in the concept of in the, in the context of entrepreneurialism. So you could imagine a graduate school like program that has coursework that has academic accreditation, but then instead of doing a normal thesis project, your thesis project leads into a spin out. Uh, oh yeah, like, the, like yeah, it, it like becomes commercialized, it becomes, or industrialized, or you can you can you can uh, you can turn it into an, an incubated company yeah. in an incubator that would instead of doing a postdoc, you could choose yeah. to flow into that. into that. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, so those would be those would be parts of it. But you know, I, I also think uh, building public private partnerships mm-hmm. would be oh, a, would be wow. a big you know big part. That's like, can you? You know, can you get the university researchers to talk the same language yes. and and have the same, you know, have similar more alignment with yeah. industry and vice versa yeah. uh, so that they can really serve each other better? Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 then, of course, I would fund uh, I would fund a mixture of blue sky science. Oh, just more completely that, exploratory, like exploratory stuff, like uh, like curiosity driven, oh, curiosity I driven. I, I love that. Uh, yeah. But then I'd I'd also fund 
science that would never get funding from the current US funders because it would be reduction to practice. So I would have a very large reduction to practice of, of known literature. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe a pathway is elucidated, a biochemical pathway in humans is elucidated by an academic lab, but no one's going to then, you know, put energy into reproducing those data. Uh, or and, standardizing and, 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 and then my group says something like, oh, that is a really important pathway. We are going to reproduce this this previous work and extend it a little bit, mm -hmm. but we're going to self-publish the reproduction of it so that people know that this important work is reproducible. Yeah. Sort of like a, a, an America's test kitchen for select science. Oh, nice. Right? Yeah. Uh, I love that. Nice. That's so, that's so, there's a like this really beautiful, that is like this, um, the first part when you first experience science, like as a child, it is that curiosity of like these open, these open yeah. fields and open frontiers of it. Um, then you might get jaded with time. <laughs> so, but. All right. We, we did say we're reaching an end. So this is the last thing we want from you. So okay. it's going to be a game and it's called the one game. And we ask you one question and it has to have an answer that would be the one thing. You can't have multiple answers. Okay. So the rules are that you're allowed one pass if you hated that question. And you have another question that you can just throw at either me or Guy if you want to. Okay. Or just answer them all and be an amazing guest. That's also another. <laughs> okay, got But it. you have that option. All right, single it's, it's one like, word it's answer. It's like rapid. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, all right. So question one would be, what is the one thing you hate the most about being a scientist? Lab drudgery. <laughs> <laughs> What is the one thing you fear the most in science? Wasting time. Ooh, mm. yeah. What is the one person in history, dead or alive, you want to have dinner with and why? That, that's a bit... A little extra. Yeah, because yeah. we really want to. <laughs> no, why? Uh, Rosalind Franklin. Oh. And not for the reason you'd think. She was very proud of, of discovering uh, the geometry of viral capsid, and oh. so much so that she had it inscribed on her tombstone. She, mm -hmm. she went to her, you know, at the end of her life thinking that that, that was as important as her DNA work, and in, in, in many ways it, it probably is. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to tell her now what all the thinking that we're doing about viral <laughs> capsule, pro, you know, capsule yeah. uh, geometry because it, 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 it came full circle in a way. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. All right. What is the one personality trait you wish you had? I wish I was more confident. Oh, wow. I'm with you on that one. Definitely. The imposter syndrome. Would you say that? Or? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, for a large part of my career. Oh, wow. Constant working on yeah, that. Yeah. All right. What is the one pet peeve you have? Not a pet you like, <laughs> a pet peeve. Pet uh, tell us what a pet he likes. I actually want to know that. Pet peeve and pet. Yeah. Uh, do plants count as pets? I think so. Well, yes. <laughs> we, yeah, we'll leave them at that. I like I like plants as pets. Uh, uh, for the pet peeve, yeah. uh, I I can't stand the phrase journal club. 
Oh really? When one is reviewing a paper, I actually had a, I have a professor that like I, I a professor taught me that does that to his studi students. I hate that. Why? Because I it isn't a club. A club implies that that you're doing something fun, or at least at, at least at least that there's like there's like a happy hour that goes with it, you know. Uh, but but to dig through someone's paper, uh, I I just never found mm, it a very fun, I, I never found it a very good use of time. I see. Uh, yeah. But then the name infuriates me too mm. because it's not fun uh, <laughs> yeah. what is your one most common white lie my one most common white lie uh i think that it is that things are to say to someone that something is well written <laughs> so 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 if, so this is an important point if you're managing other people you eventually don't have time to like proof everything to your mm. satisfaction. Mm. And the key is to let things go out under your name that maybe wouldn't yeah. be perfect. And yeah. you don't want to hurt people's feelings. So, you know, they did the best. They're like, 80, that's 20. good enough. Yeah, 80, yeah. 20. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. So what is the one most compliment comment you get? Common compliment to Com me. Yeah. Did I say that? Uh, <laughs> I've been called intense, which, <laughs> which could be good or bad, but I take it as a compliment. Always good. Yeah, yeah that's uh, a good one, no. So, okay, what is the most influential movie you've seen or book you've read? Oh, uh, influential movie I've seen. Uh, or book. Well, I did, I did actually like uh, a movie called... Uh, I always get the book and the movie Ooh. mixed up. So one of the one of the one is called October Skies, Ooh. and the other is called Rocket Boys, and I can't remember which is the book <laughs> and which is the movie. But I, I read the book and watched the movie, and uh -huh. it's about this this kid that grew up really poor to coal miner coal miners in West Virginia, and built his own rockets. Oh wow! Um, but anyway, yeah. uh, and then uh, best book, uh, I would probably say Contact. I really liked Carl mm. Sagan's Contact. Mm. Nice, yeah. nice. All right, what is the one song that you keep coming back to? Ooh. Most played, most replays. Recently, uh, it's, been, uh, it's been Van Halen's Dreams. Mm. Oh, never heard Rock that. and roll. Yeah. Nice. What is the one job you would pick if you weren't doing what you're doing now? I probably would have gone into finance to train as a VC coming from that direction. <laughs> but then maybe I wouldn't have been good at doing science VC work because I wouldn't have. Mm. One can come to the same place by more than one route. And I've often wondered what that would have looked like. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. All right. Finally reaching towards the end. So the, the ending of this game is going to be, I give you one word and you reply with one word only. Like okay. a word association. Yes. Okay. Like, so it's going to be the first one, propaganda. Donald Trump. <laughs> Pandas. That's very random. And <laughs> one word? One Pandas. word. We'll allow two if you really want to, but ultimately one word. Uh, shy. That's a good one. Vacation. Not insufficient. <laughs> <laughs> Philosophy. Diverse. Ooh. Noodles. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Art. Window to the soul. <laughs> war. War, you said? War, yeah. Sorry, my accent. War. <laughs> Deplorable. Ooh. Success.
I would say diverse. That was another answer. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Uh, many paths to success. Mm. Uh, subjective. That's the word I would oh, use. Oh, nice. I like that. Success is Guy walking. Uh, <laughs> can I use a hyphenated word? Sure. Yeah. Kick ass. Kick ass. <laughs> Dope. Nice. Lewis, thank you so much for being here. You showed up. We've learned. The, fa the fancy lab coat is lucky to have you. So well, I'm honored to, to be interviewed by you all and uh, really excited by your mission. And, uh, you know, let me know how I can help. Of course. Yes, Thank it's you. been it's been super great. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, this has been a super long conversation uh, and we could honestly keep doing this. <laughs> so but I will not. <laughs> so <laughs> Thank you. Awesome.